0: Adam, when did you fall in love with storytelling?
1: Good question. Um, my parents are both storytellers. I grew up with my mom coming to school and telling stories, you know, bedtime stories. Reading it. I come from a large family, so we'd all gather around. My mom would read stories to us, and I, I would say, you know, ever since I was a kid, like like most of us, we're all fascinated by stories. We're all engaged by stories, and I think it's one of the literally being Homo sapien means, you know, that we have wisdom and storytelling is the central part. It's what separates us from all the other creatures in the forest.
0: Were there certain stories that you gravitated toward more than others? As a kid? I mean like for the where the wild things grow. Like I loved yeah. that when I was oh, a kid. absolutely yeah,
1: mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, certain stories that gravitated I mean you know, I I was a child when Star Wars came out. So like most kids of my generation was obsessed with it which you know later got me into Joseph Campbell and a lot of those other things that um, I was fascinated by the hero, hero structure. You know when you're a little kid, for me I wanted to be Luke Skywalker when I was little and then when I hit puberty I wanted to be Han Solo. It wasn't until much later that I wanted to be uh, Princess Leia. So. Oh that's good, that's good. We'll, we'll have, <laughs> have an just, opportunity to talk about work that work later. Yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So currently, you're an author, screenwriter, story artist, and director. Mm-hmm. Which came first?
1: Um, I would say a writer and a painter, or a writer and an artist. I was one of those kids that was constantly drawing. My parents would bring home, you know, giant reams of computer paper. They started buying like sketch pads and things like that for me, and I would fill up a sketch pad in just a couple days. So my dad would bring these, you know, in the old days they would have like these reams of paper with like the perforated edges. So he would just bring that home, and I would just be drawing everything in sight. I would draw flowers, faces, my hands, anything that was in front of me, kind of obsessively in a way. Um, and at the same time, I was drawing. You know, it's like they always say that, like, whatever um, art or skill you're passionate about, it's like you're married to. And in that sense, I've always been a little bit of a polygamist because I love drawing as much as I love writing. But both of them kind of informed the same thing, which is visual storytelling. And so visual storytelling has been central to it. Like, I have this one video that I, or um, it's a film strip I made when I was a kid. And literally, it was just probably 16 frames, and I could draw directly on the film strip. <laughs> and uh, it was called Drinky and Blinky. I, I had this really, I grew up in learning uh, to speak in New York. And I had this really bad accent and a bit of a speech impediment. So I always said Dwinky and Blinky, because I couldn't say my R's or L's. But um, so little by little, it was just uh, I, I did this story about these two aliens and uh, the classic frame. like I recorded the sound and everything that went with it, and it was like this like I don't know if you remember the old film strips, you'd have to do a beep, like little beep, to twist it. So anyways, every time you do a beep to kind of signal moving forward, and so I recorded the entire audio track myself, and it's embarrassing. But you know, I mean, it showed that like literally at four years old, I was already trying to invent stories. Except one of them was literally "Dwinky and Winky (laughs) Satel." It was ridiculous. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess um, I guess I've always been fascinated by adventure. Um, I think the more I matured as a writer, I became more interested in character, and how adventure really becomes the pretext to explore character, and. and then eventually I think um, a lot of I, I became fascinated by philosophy and things like that uh, like you know, like many people that are studying art and writing and um, I became fascinated by kind of the, the connection between um, the way we build our understanding of the world through stories and how stories be kind, kind of become like a filter through which we interpret our experience. Like for example my, uh, my video is called uh, My video series is called Anatomy of Chaos and um, the reason is like people this is part of the issue I've I've had with Anatomy of Chaos like they're always asking like what it means and it, it starts off with this idea that like the way our minds work is that we are we have a kind of sub our subconscious is constantly drawing in information from everywhere we are everywhere like you walk into a room your subconscious is picking up all the details it's reading every single label on every single book It's picking up like if this person's shirt is wrinkled and then as our subconscious gathers information, it has a kind of filter through which we prioritize the information. So it's like we're swimming in the sea of chaos and we're trying to make sense of everything. And ultimately our subconscious is kind of filtering into our conscious through narratives. Those narratives help us develop a value system, which help us give us meaning. And that meaning is a kind of structure or an anatomy. So, I refer to it as the anatomy of chaos, or in other words, how we use story to make sense of the world around us. And that's ultimately where, where the name came from. The problem is, is that the average person who's looking up how to write a story is not looking for how anatomy of chaos. You know? I had a bunch of friends that were like, you need to write how to write a story, how to write screenplays. Which always seemed like the worst title for <laughs> I mean it's effective because it comes to you know the algorithms when you're like searching for uh, for interesting story or for, for whatever you're looking for but for me I tend to lean more towards the poetic than the practical so it's a, it's, it's a big reason why like for example originally I released it and it was like uh, it was called the Anatomy of Chaos Channel we've since changed it to the art of story so it's kind of more relevant to like the actual um, the actual thing that we're like that I'm the the disciplines that we're teaching or we're discussing, um, but it's still called the anatomy cast series. Within that,
0: and you're still narrating too. Going I'm back to narrating. four years old, and you're still yeah, I'm still. You're right. Yeah, exactly. you're still narrating. Which is <laughs> yeah. anybody watching this? I highly recommend they check out your channel. I mean, Thank you have you. twelve videos or eleven.
1: I have about 12, twelve videos. I'm working on the next one. Okay. Um, yeah. In fact, if we can discuss that, uh, a new announcement. Uh, we're I've been getting a lot of requests to um, release the transcripts of the different videos, um, and um, so what I've done is uh, a friend of mine actually took the time to transcribe the entire series. We formatted it. We're putting it into a book, and this week we're releasing it as a novel or as a book. So you'll be able to buy. Uh, you'll be able to buy. It's called the Lost Art of Story as wow. in lost tribe entertainment um, which is my production company oh okay so um, it, it's and it's just the transcripts of all of the the videos so a lot of people have been wanting to um, read it as they go along or just look at the lecture itself um, I also have a lot of uh, like um, friends that are deaf that can't uh, the subtitles for example aren't, aren't very good with the algorithm wow. so so the book will be available and you know Brian koppelman once said that like Every screenwriting book is bullshit, every one of them, which is why mine is only five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that'll be coming out this uh, week, and uh, it'll be available on Amazon. Right now, it's just ebook, but we'll be getting into print later on.
0: Great. Well, I, I highly recommend to anyone watching the videos because visually, and if if they are able to hear, you have with the music. And you intercut your own audio mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, different scenes from movies. I mean, it's, it's beautifully done. Thank so, you. I appreciate. I, and I noticed that all the comments were like, "I'm shocked that you don't have more subscribers," and I was shocked too. I, I yeah. think you should. So, um, that that like, actually kind of
1: goes know. back to the um, the fact that I I tend to be more. See, here's the thing. So the the impetus or the the, the history of the videos was that um, I went to Cal Arts, studied film, uh, and uh, got hired to teach there. Now I had sold one screenplay to an independent uh, production company and um, I got to work with great producers, great writers, I got to work with David Trotier who came on as a consultant and uh, I learned a ton. And so when I was teaching the, uh, the screenwriting or story class at CalArts I was able to take all this information that I was learning and try and teach it to students which is that's when you really start to, to learn it when you have to c- communicate it to somebody else. So I would teach. I kind of set up these uh, curriculum with these lectures, kind of talking like the, the basics of some of the different lessons that I had learned. Um, and I always kind of had that like in my reservoir of, or uh, or my toolkit for things I could work with. And you know, also with writing, it, it explores a lot of the the techniques that I use. So years later, when I was releasing uh, my novel, I was uh, uh, profit margin. Um, I wrote it and released it independently and in researching a lot of the uh, promotions for your books and stuff I I, um, everybody kept recommending you should start building a following by doing videos and they recommended how-to videos and things like that and I was like well I mean I've got this experience teaching at one of the top film schools so I was very lucky to have that and I'm like I'm just going to take some of my lessons put them in these short discreet little videos and that will hopefully kind of draw attention to the novel which is funny because the videos have kind of taken on a little bit of life of their own and now it become their own book. So it's, it's kind of this funny full circle but, um, but yeah so it's, it's basically it's a college course from a major film school um, but it's completely free on YouTube or $5 if you buy the book. <laughs>
0: I was going to save this question toward the end, but I'm, I'm actually wanting to talk about this now because you're talking about your YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And so when I see that channel and some of the videos I watch, I don't just see somebody that's putting them online just to build a following. I mean, you seem to put uh, tremendous care, at mm. least from my, you know, watching them. When I see work like that, I'm like, wow, you know, I wish I could be that talented. Do mm. you feel satisfied with them?
1: It's a good question. Uh, Thank you, first of all. Sure. Um, it's really nice you to say. Um, I think I, you know, I want to keep getting better at them. Uh, I watch them and I see mostly just the flaws. Like the, especially you know, the first two videos, it's like one song looping in the background. And so last, about a year and a half ago, I broke my ankle and it was a bad break and I couldn't walk for about four months. And during that time that I was healing, I couldn't do anything uh, except work at the computer so and literally I, I took the four months off that I was like staying at home so I started I was like well I just put out the book I can do these videos so the funny thing is is um, I was on Percocet and Vicodin the whole time I was recording so when, when you listen to the, to the audio I kind of had this kind of uh, that's not just the professorial or the the lecture tone. I was a little bit high when I was recording the audio. Okay. Oh,
0: well, I didn't so, notice that, but okay. Cool.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm glad that come it doesn't come off too uh drony, but um but because of that like, you know, I've been learning through the whole process. Like, you know, there's lots of audio issues. There's sometimes where the music's too high and I was never I was always self-conscious of my voice, so I didn't like the, the the way my voice sounded, so there were times where I was like consciously like I love this song, I'll we'll just put the song, and then people are like, "Can you drop the audio a little bit more because we can't quite hear it." But now you can buy the book and you get the actual uh, you get the actual words on the page. So.
0: Well, I mean, some people are, are um, what do they say auditory learners, others are visual. So yeah, for me, I think I'm probably yeah maybe more visual, but. It's an experience to watch them, so cool. I, I know I keep very harping cool. on
1: it, but I mean, I, I think. No, I appreciate that. Like, I mm-hmm. I hope that they're, I hope they're compelling. Like, my attention span moves very quickly, so I noticed that I was I tended to be drawn to videos that, just hammer in as much information as possible, which is why I tend to just jump in as quickly as possible, and that's why they're really dense. Like, I I took an hour lecture and condensed it into the bare essentials in eight minutes in the first few videos. And, um, so they're dense, but that's also why I structured them in such a way that it has this kind of, uh, like, uh, a table of contents and it's, you know, you can go back and rewatch different sections. If you just want to look up like, uh, like plot points, what is a plot point? And then you can just click on it and it'll take you exactly to that section of the video. So that way it has like, um, it has kind of a way to review it. Like you'll watch it and you're not, it's not intended to just watch once it's, it's, you know they're they're based on the lectures and the stuff that I, had, I was teaching, so I'm hoping the principles that people will revisit and it'll help them uh, in their techniques and disciplines.
0: Well, I know they say that's a common that that's the mark of a true artist is that they're never finished with something. But have you met someone um, where you were surprised to hear from their own opinion about their work that they weren't satisfied with it, and it shocked you because you were such you were in awe of it?
1: Yeah, I mean you know that's. It's, it goes back to this thing, I, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced I believe in masters or mastery. You know, that's, that's my videos start off with that quote from Hemingway that we're all apprentices in a craft with no masters. The idea with masters is this idea that, it's kind of this illusion that you have complete control of the work that you're making. And you know, if you read the journals of all of the people that we regard as masters, great painters, great writers, all of them are, they might be further along up the trail, but they're still wondering what's over the next peak. And so in, in the end, it's all of us are on this journey together to try and find some sort of meaningful experience. So yeah, I mean, it, it's true. I'm especially, when I finish a piece, almost always the second I th- call it done, I hate it. I wanna get away from it. Like I'll, I'll finish a first draft and I don't even wanna think about it for at least a good six months or a painting or something. I'll do the oil painting and then as soon as I finish it, all I'll see is the flaws. And then you know, I go back and revisit and rework it and stuff like that. And the hardest thing for me is to let something go. You know, I, it's why deadlines are really good for me. If I have a deadline, I'll work my ass off to meet the deadline, and that way I can kind of have more control of, of at least, you know, I have a point where I have to let go. So I'll kill myself to meet the deadline, and then just let it go, which is taking time to get to that point.
0: You know, the expression like people, oh, you're so hard on yourself. <laughs> Do you think? I mean, it's kind of. It's, I guess it's I don't know whatever but do you think that's almost imperative for an artist? Cuz what if they're so thrilled with their work then they don't they don't work on it, they don't try to tweak it.
1: I don't know. I mean, I think it really depends on the artist. I mean, you look at some artists, some of my favorite artists love their work. I do think that's I know lots of artists that I've worked with that they're just like, oh, everything I do is awful and they and then you start wondering, well, why are you doing it if you hate it that much? <laughs> so I love my art. I love the process of creating art. I love the process of writing. I love losing myself in story. I, like I can't stop. I literally can't turn it off. But there's also a kind of self-awareness. Hopefully, there's a kind of humility that goes along with that, which is, but I need to get better at it, you know at 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 the core of storytelling i feel like at the core of art in general is this kind of desire to to excavate our own subconscious and draw out the metaphors that mean something to us and then ultimately it's like it's like drawing wine from the grape from the from the wine press that the subconscious is the wine press so we have this amazing drink and then what we're looking for as artists is the perfect glass to deliver it to somebody else so that they can taste it and that glass is structure it's you know it's the um, it's the genre it's uh, the, the tropes that we use It's ultimately about that's that's the vehicle we're using to be able to communicate it to somebody else. Like for you what's art? How do you define art? Hmm.
0: Well something that has meaning for me something that I can be lost in someone else's existence and then you can see your own and weigh it against it and say, whether my life is better or worse whatever it's just we're all sort of n- n- we're all like these little things existing in this world no no one's more sort of mo- no one's experience is more tragic or or I- incredible than another so we just kind of get lost in someone mm. else's world and just to see it from another thing because i think we're so in ourselves mm. we can't see our own our own lives and how we do things or whatever so nice. i don't know i mean that's it, Sort of a weird no, I'm from, like I'm from the Bay Area that did, <laughs> <laughs> didn't come across, but I think just to watch for me in, in terms of film or reading a book. Mm-hmm. Um so but but I that, that's great. I like that metaphor of the the perfect glass to put the the yeah. wine in.
1: So with mm-hmm. art, like I think that's beautiful and like some of the things you mentioned is kind of get getting lost or escaping something or engaging from a completely different perspective. And I think that's really at the core of, of what art is. For example, art versus science. Like, uh, my father's a scientist. He's also, you know, aspiring artist, but he works as a scientist. He grew up, I, um, he worked as a scientist. Uh, he retired now. Uh, well, he teaches now. Um, but the, the distinction that I draw between art and science, I don't know if you've ever read, um, what is it? Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance.
0: I think I did actually, yes.
1: There you go. So they have this discussion about like techne and how techne is the original word for art or the, what was it, the, is it a Latin root? Could be Greek. No, I think it's Greek. So it, and that technology was the same root as art. So science is really the process of extracting information from reality and having some sort of understanding. Art, I believe, is the process of taking that information and making it emotionally relevant. And that emotional relevance helps us build value systems. So really, science is a way of gaining an understanding of the world around us. Art is a way of making it mean something as we internalize it. So art is the process of internalizing. And story, in whatever body it takes, whether it be a painting, whether it be a film or a novel, all of these things are ways of Of ingesting and emotionalizing information that informs our value system.
0: And you said great art doesn't necessarily have to be escapism. Is that right? Maybe I'm not sure. I I don't really buy into the
1: escapism paradigm. Like um, in my video about entertainment, I talk a little bit about that. And entertainment tends to be a little bit denigrated. Like it's like, well, you know, it's it's the lowest form of art if it's just entertaining. But the the discipline of entertainment. Like I mentioned this in the video, that the root of it comes from the Latin, entre tenere. Entre, between, tenere, to hold. And so literally, entertainment means to hold your attention from moment to moment. So when you're looking at the art of entertainment, you're engaging someone else's mind and inspiring them to begin to open it, to ask questions, to provoke them, to project their attention forward in time. And that, that question of what happens next is really what, when you know, if you get the audience to ask what happens next, then you're engaging them. And that means they're searching for meaning and that's when it's open. That's, that's re- when the art is happening. Because what's happening is they're looking for an emotional value system to internalize it into their own life. And that to me is the magic of story. When, when we're finding a new way to look at the world. So the escapism side, Though I, I do think art can be escapist, ultimately, it's kind of like it's like a magic trick. You're getting everybody to look over here. Isn't this interesting? Look at this thing. All of a sudden, it disappears. But what's really happening internally is we're finding a way to make meaning in our lives. And um, and that's true. Watching the Flintstones, watching SpongeBob, all those things. It, it feels escapist because it's not necessarily. Um, you don't feel like you're doing work necessarily. But the truth of it is, is great art is helping you expand your view of the world and find meaning in your life and, and engaging something that you wouldn't otherwise do that. This whole paradigm that I'm talking about kind of comes from this idea of like… Um, are you familiar with uh, Emile Durkheim? The, he's a sociologist, French sociologist? I'm not. Okay, so he was… Uh, he's kind of the father of like modern sociology. And he built up this… Uh, he, he had this theory of the sacred and the profane and um, in and this is, this is where I get in trouble, but <laughs> I, I think he was one of the great early thinkers about the way we develop value systems. And he was largely talking about religion and how with religion, um, it's defined by a group of people coming together and circling around sacred objects, what he called totems. And totems were essentially metaphors, or though they didn't believe there were metaphors, but they're metaphors that binded people together and um, and the other uh, counterpoint to that was the profane and the profane like so the sacred was that which was removed according to Durkheim and then the profane was that like the normal everyday mundane life so like an example would be the sacred would be walking up to a sculpture that embodies a God and Lighting candles and have a very conscious ritual experience and the mundane would be doing dishes and doing laundry so that would be the profane versus the sacred Now, this is where I get in trouble. Um, I think it's, he was looking at evidences or things that relate to the sacred and the profane, but he didn't, it's not an adequate definition of it. The way I define the sacred and the profane is the sacred is that which is vital to your survival. And the profane is anything that threatens that. Hmm. And we develop our value systems internally from there. Now you might be asking, what does this have to do with story? <laughs> and at the core, at the core, it's we find meaning by that which we prioritize, right? And we prioritize based on our emotions. So our our internal value system is our emotional structure, or our, our emotional uh, makeup. That's kind of the map of the emotions, and um, and those directly inform our moral values. And what story does is help us to engage those moral values through an emotional experience, which is why an effective story is innately emotional. And for example, a scientific narrative is largely just this, therefore this, therefore this. So a great artist, to me, great art isn't necessarily escapist or not. It's essentially defines itself by tapping into truths that resonate with multiple (coughs) generations. The way I look at metaphor, similar to you, is is that it's a, um, I see it as the basic unit of a story. It's the basic unit of, it's basically a representation of something or a concept with emotional value. And that's it's controversial because a lot of people would disagree with that and I'd love to have that conversation. <laughs> um, I'm
0: sure they'll let you know. Yeah,
1: exactly. But all of us, all perception is based on this idea that... Um, when we have a concept, like have you ever heard of Lisa Feldman Barrett? No. She wrote this book called How Emotions Are Made. It's fantastic. I I actually refer to her as Her Holiness Lisa Feldman Barrett. Oh, wow. I think she's okay. amazing. I've learned a lot from her. Okay. Um, and she she wrote this great book and she talked a lot about like the, the con the, the contemporary idea of how we develop concepts and concepts are largely defined by our goals or objectives. Like for example, this is a glass because it holds something and we can drink from it. So my objective is to drink from it, so anything that it is, can, we can hold liquid and drink from is a kind of well, glass or receptacle or cup or something like that. So that's how we define things. That's a concept, but it's not until it has an emotional significance that we've assigned an emotional significance internally that it becomes a metaphor. And I believe that's true with any kind of representation, as soon as it has an emotional um, connection in your subconscious, then it's metaphoric so when you know earlier I mentioned that story is about excavating or or searching your unconscious for the metaphors that mean something to you Um, what we're really trying to do is all of us dream all of us try to find we're constantly adapting to the world around us which means our value systems are shifting like as we adapt if there's some sort of massive trauma, it causes a dramatic shift in, uh, in the way we interpret the world around us. Story, in many ways, is a way of engaging traumas. So you're, that's why you're literally taking a character, putting them through a trauma, and forcing a kind of shift in their value system. That's how we get into character arc. And that's ultimately what a theme is. A theme is basically saying, Uh, that the life is going to impose certain traumas on you and we have to adapt to it and That's that's ultimately like where we find meaning. So when I say meaning like what does meaning mean to you?
0: Well for an example, I think meaning can be contagious So Mm -hmm. let's say Mm -hmm. I went into a donut shop This actually happened to me A donut shop near downtown LA. They were watching uh, is it a telenovela or uh, Yeah. yeah so they were and I don't I You know, just a little bit of Spanish that I understand, but everyone was riveted. They were sitting in this donut shop, even the girl behind the counter. And so because of that, I was like, wow, what is it? So that gave me some meaning for what I was watching, even though I barely understood what was being said. I was fascinated by the actress's reaction, what was happening. I guess a man was breaking into her, her home. And so just watching how everybody wasn't even paying attention to the coffee and donuts. They were all about what was up on that screen. That's fascinating. it, I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but the that became, the meaning became contagious to me now because mm. I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. I don't follow the show. I'm not sure who the actress is, but I'm fascinated. Why Why do they invest this time?
1: Do you remember the scene?
0: Uh, yes, it was a uh, an actress, an uh, attractive actress, was somewhere in her home, and there was a man outside breaking in, and the camera kept switching to her being scared inside and the man outside, and it almost seemed like the man knew her. Mm. But that's the meaning I gave it.
1: Is that And you didn't understand the language didn't at all. But you were just drawn into the narrative, I was narrative drawn anyway. into it, and I yeah. was
0: drawn into how the people were drawn into
1: it. Yeah. So you saw everyone around you expressing high priority attention. That's what attention is: is you're giving priority, mental, uh, a kind of mental loan uh, to to that subject matter. And that's that actually gets into the, what I think is the most interesting part of story. Is that it is contagious? It story is about building group values, ultimately, which is where you know we get back to to Durkheim again. Is that ultimately we we are building a kind of consensus, a kind of uh, well, it's not universal. It's 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 usually group specific kind of uh, value systems that connect to this group. Like so, those, so, these metaphors become very important. Like this girl who felt threatened. And she was trapped in her apartment everybody had invested in her so they had the concept of the girl and then the emotional attachment to her or it's like joseph campbell says like tragedy is how's he say it tragedy is the attachment to forms and the shattering of that attachment and then comedy is what is it the effortless kind of disregard or detachment from things and i think at the core that's that's ultimately where we're talking about the emotionality of something also like with uh pilar alessandro She's a friend of mine as well. Oh, okay. And um, yeah, she's great. She always says that uh, stories an event plus emotion, or event plus emotion equals story. She always puts it as an equation. I love that because it's exactly true. Without the emotion, it's not a story. It's just a series of events, albeit I'll, I'll logical. But it's not. It's not until it's emotional that it means something. So for me, um, earlier we we're talking about meaning, and meaning is the the resonance with that central value system that we all developed, that each of us developed, that sacred and the profane, and then all of the priorities that proliferate from there.
0: When we tell a story, we're entering into a contract with the audience.
1: Mm. Oh, yeah, from the video.
0: Okay. Yeah. Can we, can we talk about that? What's this contract? Can we get out of the contract?
1: Um, sure. You pay a price for it. So basically, when you're saying, when you sit down and say, "I'm going to tell you a story." You are promising something, and um, and you know I, 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 in the video I draw a comparison. I use the metaphor of um, you're taking out a loan from somebody, and what you're promising is that you're going to pay back the loan, and that they will get interest for their investment of attention. And attention is the currency that they're that they're spending. It's actually the probably most important currency, like real world currency that we're dealing with, is the currency of attention, especially with the internet. Especially, the fact, especially in the entertainment industry. Literally, entertainment is the, the, the industry of paying, getting people to pay attention. So what you're doing is you're promising that it's gonna be worth it, that it's gonna be worth um, putting their time into it. Um, so your job as the artist is not only to present the conflict in an interesting way, but to make it mean something to them. And that's that's where it gets very subjective. That's why you can have some of the great storytelling, and only a few people will get it, because it's it's relative to like whatever psychological dynamics or whatever values resonate with them.
0: Can you give me an example of um, a story that does pay off, where the contract is fulfilled, and someone's obligation is paid off, and then maybe one that it's not fulfilled?
1: Hmm. Ton. What's a good simple one? Back to the Future. Uh, will he get back to the future? Right there you're making a promise with that title. Usually the t- the, the contract you're making with the audience is right in the title, it's right with the trailer. Um, will he get back to the future? You're you're promising that in some way not only are you gonna answer the question but that you're going to enjoy the ride and that it's gonna mean something when he gets there. And I do think that that's, you know, ultimately he goes through this whole journey. It's Michael J. Fox, who's endlessly entertaining and then uh, what was it Zemeckis who's just brilliant like it's it's perfectly directed it's so much fun and and it's the movie that everybody's seen so it's like I would always use it as like the perfect example of just like entertaining movie like it's just a completely entertaining movie so I do think it completely fulfilled the contract you're entertained the entire time and you're and then at the end um, he gives you exactly what you want in a way that you don't expect and it's fun you know you enjoyed it but along the way, you're also learning little themes like about you know this high school teenager who's learning to appreciate his family and learning what his parents went through and shit like that that actually kind of resonates on kind of a more subconscious level where it's like you know he he begins to de- to develop an appreciation for the di- different generations and then how he that story continues on in his own life. Um,
0: yeah, he's almost reliving his dad's experience yeah. in some sense. He's becoming like, because he sees that his dad was, you know, n- not the most popular guy in high school and was bullied, and then he's experiencing it yeah. himself because he stands up to Biff.
1: So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then, for another example that I think is is actually a really interesting example, look at uh, No Country for Old Men. Um, now, the thing I love about the Coen Brothers is that they're constantly subverting their own. The, the audience's expectations, they're they're playing with it. They they play with the contract constantly, which is where it alienates a lot of people. But the people who are willing to take the journey with them, they find something incredibly like much more rewarding. So with No Country for Old Men, I don't know if you read the novel as well. I didn't. Oh, it's, oh I love Cormac McCarthy. He's <laughs> one of my favorite writers. I always compare him to like a, if Hemingway and Faulkner had a baby. Be McCarthy. <laughs> um, but he he. So, Llewellyn Moss, um, he's kind of the hero. He's the underdog in the story. And you're following this whole journey. And the whole contract is is it going to mean something that Llewellyn Moss is going to find this bag full of millions of dollars, go on a journey, and change his life? And everything's going to be awesome after that. Um, we're going to get into spoilers here. so OK, um, spoiler alert. Spoiler okay. alert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, when he, he goes through this entire journey, and in the novel, they also did this as well. He gets to a point and the sheriff uh, Tommy Lee Jones character is following him around and you're waiting for this whole thing to build up to this big explosive climactic payoff where it's Anton Chigurh and Llewellyn Moss and they're both well matched and there's this hero and this villain and you're waiting for the big standoff and it doesn't come and instead Tommy Lee Jones drives up to a hotel, he sees just barely the periphery of some standoff. And Luella Moss is dead. We never even saw it. We just see the dead body. And immediately, when I first read it, um, I had to go back and reread it. I'm like, did I miss something? Because it felt like I felt, at first, my first response was, I just got cheated. They got me to invest in Luella Moss. He's making this huge sacrifice. Why did he do this? But it was the fact that he did subvert that contract, that he did subvert our expectations. And then when you see it in the movie, they adapted it perfectly. where it's also it's anticlimactic but it's the fact that you're expecting the climax that created the meaningful resonance afterward like it, the after that when you start looking at like what did it mean that Luella Moss just died and it wasn't a standoff in fact his wife ends up having to pay the price as well she ends up getting murdered by Anton Sugar as well and ultimately it's this question you know it goes back to the theme that is this no country for old men. Like, is this, is this some evil that's ancient that, um, that takes out that has like no mercy for for goodness or kind people. So ultimately, it, it really comes down to when you're paying off a contract, you're trying to engage their attention, and if you do break it, you have to have a good reason for it. So. And you know, art is a bridge. you know you're, you're trying to build across the waters to the to somebody else's mind. And um, So ultimately, you know, every single artist has diff- builds their bridges differently. You know, Michael Bay will build his bridge all the way across so people can just kind of step on and have a conveyor belt across. And then Kubrick will build his bridge halfway across, and the audience has to build their bridge all the way, ac- halfway across and then meet in the middle. Uh, and then you'll get someone like, Vendors, or someone that you know, it takes you on a journey, and you don't know where it's going, and you're pretty much building a bridge to where he's at, you know. But it, you know, and everybody, everybody decides, every artist decides how far they want to build their bridge across the water.
0: Don't you think, though, every writer thinks that there that there's a payoff. That it makes sense to them, but unfortunately, to an outside view, they may not see that payoff. Sure. I, I don't know. Sense. I can't yeah, speak I mean, for other writers. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: um, I sure. I do think that there is, you know, the basic economy of story. If if you promise something, give it in a way that give the you know the old thing, the old adage is give the audience what they want in a way they don't expect. Um, but it really comes down to the needs of the story. What are you trying to convey with your story? You know, and I don't like imposing too much of like to me. What's really interesting is when, like, finding the exception of of those rules. Until it actually, uh, until it actually means something new, you know.
0: Can you give us an overview of your four-act story structure?
1: So, what, one of my favorite uh, instructors that I worked with his name is Ron Mita. Uh, he taught a class um, over in Valencia, and he wrote um, SWAT, and then I think he sold some stuff. He developed uh, robots for Blue Sky or something. Really good guy. Very practical. Um, Great writer, very cool guy. He's amazing for pitching as well, Um, and he had this. He was the one that introduced me to this idea of just 24 plot points, and um, and he said just you know literally just write down 24 just 24 numbers and just put PP plot point plot point plot point, and then break it down into you know the first act, Uh, and then you know most people say first second and third, but everybody divides it at the midpoint. Now it really comes down to how do you define an act? And in researching, um, when I was working on the videos, I was trying to come up with a good definition for act. And you know I looked at Robert McKee, Truby, Trottier, um, a lot of the greats, and uh, I couldn't find a very clear, specific definition of an act. So I, you know I'm ridiculously pedantic, so I, I really tried to come down to this, uh, boil it down to its essence. I try to be as precise as I can with the terms and definitions. Like for example um, inciting incident. That word that term always bothered me just because technically every single sequence has an inciting incident, has an incident that's inciting the next behavior. Um, Snyder will refer to as the catalyst. A catalyst is where you take two elements a, a chemical reaction that's already going to happen and a catalyst speeds it up. So what you're saying is that the catalyst is going to take something that's inevitable and enhances it. That's why I call it the impetus. An impetus is a force that moves, that motivates movement. And that's, which is a very specific thing that happens once in the screenplay. So that, that, and that's, you know, that's my terminology that I use. I think whatever metaphor helps people make sense of the story and take care of the essential elements is fine. So Ron Mita's approach was basically put the 24 plot points, uh, plot point six is end of act one, Plot point 12 is the midpoint. Plot point 18 is your low point. And then plot point, I think it was 21 is your climax. And then after that's falling action. Very simple. And it's like we would we would literally just sit there and plot out a story in an hour. And it's, it's super pragmatic. So from there, um, it really came down to trying to understand, all right, if we keep dividing everything into midpoint, um, like Pilar for example, she'll use uh, act 2a and 2B and it kept on begging this question what is an act? So in in your mind, what is an act? How would you define one?
0: What is an act? okay yeah. well it's not really a scene but it, ti- it it sets you up for one part of the journey. okay so let's just say there's a story of, someone going to college and maybe they're a fish out of water and they get a scholarship and they don't really belong in this world. Mm-hmm. And so the first act or the second act, act—maybe be more the, I would say the second act would show them arriving with their stuff at the campus and knowing how they're out of place, knowing how they're not going to fit in with the culture. And so you see them kind of scared with their box of stuff, maybe being brushed aside by busy people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's establishing the world of that college and they don't feel like they fit in and they kind of know they don't and everybody else knows they don't fit mm-hmm. in either but somehow they've been able to go there so that's a long-winded way of setting up maybe that would be the second act i don't know maybe, okay. maybe i'm jumping ahead too much but
1: no i mean i think you just described two acts right okay okay so where would um, you divide it that's the big question. And when everybody you know, there, there's people like uh, like David Franzoni. He came to CalArts, gave one of my favorite lectures on story ever. And he's like, fuck three act structure. There's no such <laughs> thing as acts. You just understand story, you get into character, and you throw a conflict at them, and they pursue their objectives. And don't worry about acts. And that's fine. That, if that works for you, that's awesome. I don't, like, to me, all of it's modular, all of it is. is Use it as assets that help you write and anything that's holding you back from writing, let it go. You know, it has this kind of, it, to me, I like to understand things as thoroughly as I can. I learn very slowly and thoroughly and then let go whenever the story needs to take its own direction. Um, so the way I look at an act is essentially defined by strategies. So a character, the, the first act is a character has a specific strategy which is their normal daily life. This is the value systems that that have gotten them to this point in life. So when the impetus comes in and throws their life out of balance, they find suddenly that they have to, they start to negotiate it and try and be like, well, I don't wanna change my life, I don't wanna do anything. But the second they cross that threshold and begin to shift into a new strategy, then they've crossed into a new act. So what I've found every single time is that um, Act 2, for example, um, you usually have a character that's you know, trying something new like Tootsie. Um, he's <laughs> How did you know
0: I watched that as a kid? Oh, God.
1: It's so great. <laughs> Pollock is brilliant. Um, so uh, you have uh, Michael Dorsey who's dressed as Dorothy Michaels and he's having success and everything he's doing is bringing him more and more success and it looks like, hey, this new strategy is working. Before that, his strategy was, I'm gonna be a difficult actor until no one will work with him. So he hits his breaking point, all right, I'm gonna dress as a woman and commit completely to the role. And, um, and he sees nothing but success until he hit the midpoint when everything that he's doing feels like it's paying off but ultimately betrays his authenticity. So it's at the midpoint where basically you feel like you're getting everything you want and this can, com, is completely subjective to the needs of the story. This is just generally how the, um, how the structure tends to go. But when you hit the midpoint, often you're, you learn that you are as far away from your original objective as you could be thinking that you're just about to achieve it, generally speaking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that realization, whatever that is, the introduction of a new conflict or something like that, creates a kind of uh, shift in strategy. And usually that strategy is very like frantic and coping. and So all the value systems that had informed that earlier strategy of, hey, everything's gonna work, you hit the midpoint and it's failing and you just come tumbling down the mountain till you get down to the low point. Because all, the, the first two acts are all about setup. And then the second two are all about payoff. So that, sec- that, that third, what I define as an act, what is to be, But I just call it Act Three. It's easier that way. um, Is really just a strategy of collapsing down the hill until you get to the low point. So all of those choices are paying off, but for the bad.
0: What do you think? A lot of new writers kind of not go wrong, but have trouble with the line in terms of maybe two and three. The line when when sort of that that moment where you think that they're going to achieve this payoff that they came to see the movie for mm. but it actually that's the beginning of a new set of issues and now it's going to take you in a brand new direction where do you think a lot of writers have trouble when it comes to is it is it setting up the first act is it is it where it's not compelling enough or it's too much drama in the first act and we need a little bit of a build
1: i we'd almost have to take that a case by case scenario i'm generally speaking i'm not really sure like where so many people hit the same problems Mm -hmm. but a lot of it comes down to uh, generally speaking yeah if you're paying attention if, if you've invested the most important thing is if you've invested in a character and you care about what the character wants you understand what the character wants and you understand what's at stake if they don't get it you're free to do anything you want you can play with structure throw away structure altogether as long as you have that like sorkin says worshiping it at the altar of intent and Conflict is that Mm -hmm. it. Um, Yeah, should get my quotes down a little better. Um, But it's it really comes down to um, understanding the nature of character. Every scene has to have a kind of emotional uh, motivation, and if it's not emotional, then we're not we're going to disengage. It's not just it's not just conflict. It should be conflict that's increasing as we're going along. So I mean, you know, I see a. I see a lot of television and movie. I mean, right now is a great time for writers. There's so much good writing. There's so much really strong writing. Um, a lot of it comes down to pacing. A lot of it comes down to really making sure that the audience is with the main character, and that their choices are making sense, and that that you care about how this is going to affect the way they're moving forward. But I think if you're tracking that, and most you know most writers, we're all you know we're delving into ourselves to try and pull out this meaning. Um, a lot of it, like for example, working with, with producers, um, most of the notes that I'll get um, tend to be kind of, you know just tracking like, does it make sense that this character would do this at this time? You know And it's about trying to project and, and, and uh, project yourself into the character and understand the intentions and if that's consistent with your overall uh, character profile.
0: I have a quote here, and, and that is uh, from William Goldman from his book *Which Lie Did I Tell*, and he says, uh, "You have to protect your writing time; you have to protect it to the death." Hmm. So, are you protective of your creative time, and how so?
1: Yes. Okay, so I've never—I'm not one of those people that have a difficulty with motivation. I, I'm like a slingshot. I—I I have a my rubber band is always hey, rubber band. Yeah, my rubber band is always drawn tight. Like, I'm, for me, it's not a question of will I be motivated to do it. It's it's a question of when can I get to it. Uh, so I'm I'm a little bit obsessive too. So I don't really follow. I I don't have much of. Writer's block is a real thing. I don't believe writer's block has anything to do with motivation or anything like that. A lot of it just has to do with like baking your metaphors in your in your subconscious until they're ready to come out and present themselves as a meaningful experience. Um, so for me, I don't write every day. I write a lot. I'm very prolific, but I spend most of my time in Storyville. You know, like I spend most of my time kind of in this meditation or concentration. Like for example, I you know while I'm painting and drawing, it's like. One part of my brain can be focused on painting, drawing, um, working on storyboards or something like that. And then the other part of my brain is sitting there plotting out the next scene and um, connecting all these different things. So a lot of it comes down to um, I'm constantly thinking about story, I'm constantly coming up with stories, I have a list of more than 100 different uh like novels, screenplays, comic books, short stories that I'm working on right now. I'm you know juggling three different, uh, well, two features and two pilots that I'm writing actively. One in particular that I'm really excited about. Um, so, as far as protecting my time, uh, art's always been my priority. Like, probably some friends say it's, it might be a little bit of an unhealthy attachment to my art. Because I tend to be a little obsessive, and uh, but you know, it's what brings me meaning. It's, it makes nothing makes me happier than sitting down and writing a great scene, and then having somebody read it, and then making it better. You know, and it's it's also making a beautiful painting or shooting an amazing scene that like just nails exactly what I'm going for, or cutting the pieces together like editing and stuff. It's just the process of art is magical to me. So, for me, it's, I find so much fulfillment from it that it's uh, m- most of the time I can't wait to get to the cafe and write, or I can't wait to get to my chair and write, or I can't wait to get to the computer and draw or paint. So, it's, but I, I know that like a lot of people do struggle with that. I just haven't been one of those people that do.
0: I think that's great. At least you're not making someone else your higher power. I mean, you're making your art in some sense. Yeah. I think that's actually great because that's something that's within you and yeah. you're not depending on another person for it. So I actually sure. think that's healthy, but mm. has there ever been a time when you feel like you you're not spending enough time on creating something whether it's painting, writing and you're like I need to defend my time to do it and I need to make room for it?
1: Well like I said before in the, in the sense of like I love painting, I love drawing, I love working on designing comic books, I love designing characters, modeling, things like that. But I've made the conscious to choice that right now the best thing I can do is invest in my writing. Um, I spent a lot of my career working on other people's stories and other people's like uh, you know, I get to work on Kung Fu Panda, Legends of Awesomeness, and Monsters Versus Aliens, and things like that, and it's been amazing. I love working in the story department. I love collaborating with producers and other writers and stuff. Um, but um, I've made a very conscious effort to, for example, the I made a very conscious effort to um, make sure that I'm focusing my discipline. Where it's going to pay off. So, so for example, right now I'm I'm uh, working on a television show. I've been working. I wrote a pilot. He's read it, flipped over it. We're working together, and we're currently shopping it around, and we're very excited about it. Um, but uh, you know what? I want to pitch it to you. You want to hear it? Okay, sure. Cool.
0: Do you want me to pretend I'm assistant or?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Um, well, actually, this can tie into a little bit about how the uh, like. Okay, so the biggest thing we're looking for when we're, when we're writing is that we're trying to you know, pull the metaphors from ourselves and make it mean something to somebody else. And ultimately that's talking about theme. Theme tends to be um, essentially moral in nature. Now a lot of people like for example uh, uh, Robert McKee, he, he calls it the controlling idea. And I like that he approaches it that way because what he, like, especially during that time there was kind of this tendency to be like we don't want to moralize stories because when you try and use a story to convey a moral it starts coming off as preachy and then you disengage from it and then you don't buy into it. So it's, it's good to have that kind of removal but at its core it really is a kind of moral experience and, and by moral I mean um, something that has survival value.
0: Okay, so, like I just. Oh, sorry. Go a ahead.
1: principle, a principle of the way the world works with survival value. So, for example, if you lie, it ends up biting you in the ass. So that's a claim about the way the world works, or the way the universe works. So, if you tell this, if you tell this lie, people find out about it, and then it catches up to you. Um. So, and what we're doing essentially is every single story is ex- essentially expressing a kind of. Moral value. That moral value is the theme. So the character is essentially there to experience the rules of the universe and then adapt to whatever that moral theme is.
0: So let me see if I understand this. I'm going to take the example. Or pay the
1: consequence of the moral theme.
0: Right, okay, like Norma Ray. I just rewatched that. Norma Ray, Sally Field. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? Okay, darn, because I was going to say, it has so many themes in it. It's not just like this feminist Mm -hmm. sort of movie, there's also. The theme of sort of like xenophobia. I don't know if that's actually a theme, mm. but this union organizer comes to this small town where they need that mill. That's where all the jobs have been for years. That's mm. where everyone's families worked. They don't want to rock the boat with yeah. the owners. If they try to like strike out and get better wages, get better working conditions, it's going to bite them because mm. they they'll just be expendable. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is the theme of that movie we would think is more about. Her standing up, her standing up to her father, her standing up to some of these men that have maybe used her or whatever. Mm. She's willingly allowed that, but it's also about um, seeing a world that's outside of this small little microcosm that you've been in. Yeah, you know, she's only seen this little small town, this this hard working life where the conditions are bad. I'm trying to think of what the name of the theme would be. As you said, it's it's a moral theme, is about sort of morals.
1: Yeah. So, mm-hmm. what's a moral to you?
0: more well is it about values is it about I consider stealing wrong let's say mm. I see something of my neighbors that's out there that's accidentally there mm-hmm. does that mean that it's okay for me to take no
1: hmm.
0: even okay. if I don't like the person I don't want to take it because so it's wrong
1: why would it be wrong
0: because it doesn't belong to me I didn't pay for it
1: and what are the consequences of doing that
0: maybe nothing but I would know about it Okay. And I think that's where. So that
1: might inform the way you see the world and your behavior. And,
0: and how I look in the mirror at myself. Yeah. Because then I feel like, uh, I don't know if I can justify that to myself taking something. If something so it else. might
1: carry on certain individual consequences, and then you'd have yeah. to pay a certain price for that.
0: Even if this person didn't know it.
1: Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I define moral morality as the rules of survival, right? And a theme is a rule of the universe. So what we're constantly trying to do as homo sapiens is we're trying to find out how the universe works and the best way to navigate it And it's through narratives that we learn these value systems That's why we're constantly sharing these new stories because we're constantly every single day trying to find out how the world has changed So that we can adapt to it And it's always been this constant rate of change and we and story is the mechanism for adaptation That's why I really don't buy into this escapist um, approach so so theme being these rules of the universe, like every story has multiple themes to it, but I would say that a a very compelling story tends to have a clear hierarchy of themes. So, what's a good example? Um, we'll start with uh, Back to the Future. Okay. It's simple. Um, <laughs> uh, like, what are what are what can we extrapolate from uh, Back to the Future? Like, what what. What are the rules of survival that we can learn from Back to the Future?
0: Oh, there's so many. Um, it sounds like some of it's about family, protecting family, mm. um, and then learning your history. Mm, okay. Um, having a better understanding of yourself through your history. And then um, it is another sort of a fish out of water scenario. Yeah. Um, not understanding the social mores and rules of that time frame of that area.
1: Cool. So you're pulling a whole bunch of different rules of the universe that he had to deal with, that Marty McFly had to deal with. You essentially start out with a character who's always late. He's has a little bit of an inferiority complex. He's seen as a loser by the principal and all this stuff. And so he's in a bit of this uh, shifting identity. His his identity is like why is my life so miserable? How come I don't have everything I want? Which we all identify sure, with. Sure. Yeah. And then by him going back in time, he starts to learn that it was the choices of his parents that directly affected where he was. And by throwing himself in the middle of that, those choices begin to shift and evolve. And then you know he gets to have a fantasy of like what it would be like if things were different. Um, so at the core of it, usually what we're looking for is one central theme that informs everything. I, that's usually defined by what I would call the moral imperative, which is the rule, um, the rule of survival that informs the entire story. Um, so ultimately, he learns that he shouldn't fuck with time, or time will, or they'll have to have to pay the consequence. But ultimately through this whole experience he learns that by getting to know his parents in a completely different way, by identifying with them at the same age where he was, he sees that they had an opportunity to become uh, to, to be people he would actually care about rather than just being kind of his parents and they're boring, they're actually people that he would have interacted with and cared a great deal for. And then when he comes back he sees how different everything is which always has a little bit of an irony to it.
0: I know. But, uh, but you see how they were set in these roles and how he just saw them as one way when and they were sort of these tragic roles in a way yeah. you know but what do you think his relation to doc is what's the theme there i was always fascinated by doc
1: yeah Why do you think that is why were we fascinated by him
0: cuz he was this sort of brilliant guy that no one understood and um, people were sort of afraid of him like oh he was almost evil yeah. but he wasn't he was, he was misunderstood. You know, the people always say, "Oh, he's not a bad person; he's just misunderstood." Yeah. But it doesn't really seem like a bad person.
1: I, I mean, I love Christopher Lloyd, but I always felt like Doc was a bit of a device. Like he was, uh, I mean, what was their interaction? I mean, it eventually over the sequels and stuff, they started to care about each other. But ultimately, you're always wondering, like, why is this teenager ha- hanging out with this Doc? <laughs> but it works for the story, you know. You just, you just buy it, you invest in it. But. um But yeah, ultimately with stories, we're looking for a central theme that informs all the other themes. Like for example, uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. You know, essentially it's about learning to love people, like learning to let people live their own lives and still love them regardless. Because Royal was always trying to control the way everybody behaved and that ended up causing this massive identity crisis for his entire family until everyone's miserable, depressed and separated from each other. So it's when they come back and he's like, tries to reconnect with all of them that he starts to impose his old value system he tries to manipulate people because he doesn't trust them to love him so it's not until he learns if i just love them for who they are if i just let my son and adopted daughter fall in love with each other and without judgment then they then they're going to figure it out for themselves and they'll love me regardless and that was like that was the core lesson that he needed to learn which is that you know, accept people for who they are, and then then you can love them for who they are without trying to change them into something else. And so that I would say that's the central theme, and then every other story after that. Like for example, uh, oh, uh, Luke Wilson's character, Tenenbaum, uh, Ricky Tenenbaum? Anyway, Luke Wilson's character, the Tenenbaums, He um, his central theme was he felt extremely imposed upon by his parents' values. That's why. He, You know he wore the headband like his identity of success or his identity was being a successful tennis player and um, so he always felt like he was carrying around the baggage of his parents expectations which directly informs his his deeper inner desire which was that he was in love with Margot, and uh, so it was through this process of learning to just let go to let his heart be broken and then eventually That royal learned to love him for who he was, that he that they were able to let go of this baggage, and so that would be kind of a supporting theme that ties into the central theme, which is letting people be who they are and then loving them regardless. Do you
0: outline every story that you write?
1: Yeah, I'm. uh, Yeah, I'm pretty thorough with my outlining. Um, I tend to. uh, I'll spend quite a bit of time. Outlining before I even write the full, like I'll usually have a complete full outline, and then jump into the story. So I'll have a really specific idea of the objective of every single scene, um, and ultimately it saves me time. Uh, when I first started writing, I was anti-outline. I kind of had the uh, attitude, you know, it's the young attitude of just like, you know, I'm just going to write, and my my gut's going to tell me what's right and what it's meaningful and stuff like that. And that works for a lot of writers. But I noticed that I would hit a lot of dead ends and I became emotionally attached to those dead ends and then it became really hard to rewrite until I just drove my stories off the cliff. And so little by little, the more I, you know, honestly, that Ron Mita 24 plot point thing was huge because it was, it was so simple. You could literally sit there and just plot out a story in an hour and you'd have a really good idea of where it was going. And then from there, you're, you know, that's, to me, that's when you go from like, you know, discovering your story to actually becoming a craftsman or a craftsperson where you're working on the story and taking control of it. And then you start to st- take a step back, and then, you know, it, it's almost like a render machine. You're rendering your story before you ever sit down and write it. So then the script really just becomes kind of a, a secondary artifact of all of the work that you've put into it. So yeah, I spend a lot of time outlining. It, it's And it's, you know, a lot of people feel like it takes away from the creative process. Usually that's kind of the writer saying, well I want to be in the audience too and I want to experience and be surprised by it. But outlining doesn't take away from that because what happens when you sit down like you've outlined, you've got your outline right here and then when you're writing you put yourself in the moment, you're, you're in the skin of the writer or of the character and you, you're experiencing it and then if your gut tells you to try something different Try something different, see where it goes. So you're still, you know, the whole um, uh, gardener versus architect, the panzer versus plotter kind of thing. I call it what is it? The uh, the assassin versus the berserker. Um, basically, the idea that like the the planner versus the person that just sees what happens next. And I I think it's important to to. Um, understand the consequences of the choices you're making but the whole process of writing is an experiment art is an experiment and the the only thing that rules it is do we make it emotionally resonant for somebody else and as artists we get to decide how much that is like how how we build that relationship if we want to do it as a li- like for a living then we become responsible to those people that are investing in us and that's that's when you want to be able to uh, to have control of your craft, that's when you want to be able to, you know, climb the mountain, know how you're going to get up there, because you have got to meet a deadline. You know, it's there aren't a lot of producers that are going to be like, all right, you know, we needed this three months ago, and you're still just kind of wandering in the weeds. But a lot of the process of writing is experimenting in the weeds, going into the weeds, and then stepping back. And the trick is just not, not panicking when you're in the weeds. And saying, okay, this is part of the process. Let's step back and look at the let's look at the outline and see if this is going to work. So for me, it feels like it's like um, like a map. You're zooming in, and you know you can do the the street view, where you're in the character and you're just driving along, and you're like, yeah, I feel this. I'm going through this street, and that's when you're writing. But then you pull back, you zoom out, and you see the overview of where you're going, and that's the outline.
0: So do you think with without an outline a writer backs themselves into a corner a little bit?
1: I mean we're all vulnerable to that. Even with an outline we're, we're vulnerable to it. Um, but again, I don't believe in any right or wrong. Like, um, There's this one writer, uh, Bob Signs. He's amazing. He says he does an outline. He's successful, writes great stuff. He just wrote um, uh, Extracurricular and it's fantastic. I read the script. It's so good. And um, he he doesn't outline but he knows how to write, he gets, he gets where he needs to go um, and he knows how to tell a story. So it's like it's like what works for you is fine. The important thing is to be able to, um, to sell it to the producers, to engage the people that, that, that need to be engaged. You're writing for readers largely so you want to learn the, the language of what they expect but within that you know, it's, it's whatever gets you there. I don't think you have any obligation. But generally speaking, the average person would benefit from taking the time to plan out where their story is going to go, have a good idea of how it's going to end, and then you know work toward that.
0: In the past, have you introduced that twenty-four point system to some of your students, and were they surprised? Yeah, actually, in my
1: first in my first uh, video, I introduced the twenty-four plot points. And uh, then I break it down into acts, and then sequences, and then scenes, and everything like that. So it's um, it's just a really simple, simple kind of like a lot of people they'll stare at the blank page. I've never understood staring at the blank page because by the time I'm ready to write a scene, I've already had like pages of writing. I can't. It's like the slingshot. You're just like slowly like preparing, like uh, getting all the scenes, getting the character, getting the plot, the conflict. You know what every character wants. So when you sit down, you're ready to write. You let go, and you're just flying, you know. But it's um, but it really comes down to everybody discovering their own process, you know. And I, I'm not a purist. Like, lots of people don't outline, and they're very good writers. They're very successful, and a lot of that's the the intuition or their experience that informs it.
0: Can we talk about text, subtext, and context? What does each item mean?
1: Yeah. Um, oh, it's a big subject. Text, subtext, and context. So, ultimately, it is about a character wanting something, right? Every story is about a character wants them, wanting something and then facing a conflict to get it, whether they get it or not. Um, so, when they want something, they have a desire. That desire is expressed through subtext. If I want this glass of water, I'm going to take the action, right? So the subtext is that you can infer I'm thirsty, or I'm looking for some sort of like physical distraction to keep my hands busy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and the gulping is part of that too. Maybe, sure. Maybe there's I'm about to confront you on something. Yeah, so, sure. You know, or, or I'm your boss, or you know, whatever. I'm a ex-girlfriend. I mean, there's just so many things, and, and yeah. you're like. Ooh. You
1: know, yeah, exactly. What's she gonna say to me? So a lot of that is about interpreting. We we are guessing what a character wants from the behaviors they're exhibiting, right? Um, now the context is simply the worldview, the situation they're dealing with, right? So we're sitting in a room right now. We have uh, we all have different objectives, um, and so the, this the when the character. So the context is literally just like the, the plate that you're serving everything on. Um, like uh, I compare it like visually, I came up with the metaphor of uh, creme brulee. I just use a visual metaphor where you've got the plate as the context, and then you've got the brulee or the, the creme or the cream uh, as the subtext, and then the the top layer that's burned and scorched, um, bruleed, is uh, the text
0: oh that's great
1: so the idea is basically what we're seeing is words right and those words often are in complete contradiction of actual intention but in some way we're interpreting those words as a kind of behavior so most of the time like for example it's part of the reason when i'm writing the last thing i do is write dialogue that was another thing i learned from ron Mita. you want to be able to well do it however you want but for me, I like to have the character's intentions very clear, and the conflict that they're going to be facing very clear, and what we're constantly trying to do. There's this one. Um, there's this one book called Character and Viewpoint, uh, where it talks about uh, how essentially, you know, we're all like uh, chimpanzees in the wild, and when they're in uh, when they're in the jungle, and they sense that there's a threat, they run away, and. The first thing they do as soon as they feel like they're safe, the very first thing they do is they stop, they turn around to see where the source of danger is. So that's when they're completely engaged. The whole chimpanzee metaphor is basically that we're trying to interpret the intention of things that are around us. So we're, we're, we're projecting what we think that person wants by the way it's behaving. So we're trying to determine whether it's a threat or whether it's safe, whether it's on our side or against us, that kind of thing. So ultimately, what we're looking for with, uh, like, with with dialogue, is we're trying to see if we can believe them, and the most interesting characters are completely unaware of what's actually driving them, you know, like they're, the whole time, like, Indiana Jones is going through all of these ridiculous hoops, um, not really. Like the whole time we're wondering, like, why is he taking on these Nazis? Why is he being dragged by a chair just so that like some something can make it into a museum? Ultimately, he has this really, you know, stuff that depends how deep you want to go with Indiana Jones, but um, he he has this kind of drive to. It's genuinely emotionally upsetting to him that there would be some betrayal, some misrepresentation of the truth and that's what's interesting is so like the whole time he's making all these really bold choices you think he's kind of this glib sarcastic professor but um, what he's really doing is uh, he's, he's trying to unearth truth and he's trying like he's literally putting his body under all his brutality because he wants to the truth to be revealed and that's you know and every single choice you know that because every single choice whether he admits it or not has led toward him exposing the truth for what it is.
0: So, which is better, subtext or context? Because we know the less you sort of tell. That's
1: like saying which is better, <laughs> the trigger or the <laughs> bullet.
0: Okay, all right. Okay, <laughs> you know? so maybe uh, which which is the best to focus on? Maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding some of what what because text I get, subtext. Yeah, it makes sense when you said you took. You went to take the drink. Well, then I can infer that maybe you're thirsty, or maybe you're using it as a buffer. Yes,
1: subtext is an expression of the desire. Okay, right. And the text is—it's only one means of expressing that desire.
0: Sure. Instead of saying I'm thirsty, and then you, but by doing it, it, it's much more believable. Or I realize that you're needing that glass for Mm -hmm. some reason. But then the context, I think, is where I'm like just trying to figure that out a little bit more. So the context would be
1: okay. So, for example, um, um, okay, I'll take a simple line. Go ahead, drink it. Right. So, go ahead, drink it. Is the text
0: okay? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we can add different subtext to it. So, if I say, go ahead, drink it there's a different subtext i'm sure. maybe threatening you right mm-hmm. if i say go ahead drink it right i'm saying i don't really care what you do <laughs> right. if i say go ahead fucking drink it right well, i change the text a little bit but the subtext is totally different mm-hmm. now so that's text and subtext context is we're sitting in a bus i'm holding a gun this is a clumsy way i'm holding a gun and you're holding poison and I'm holding your child oh. so now the context is extremely loaded and the, the choice that you're about to make is implicit and I'm saying if you don't drink it I'm going to shoot your baby mm-hmm. so I say go ahead drink it see the context right. is okay. the story mm-hmm. the context is a situation you're dealing with we can come up with a much better, that's just the clumsy no, no. off the top of my head okay, kind of thing. That makes sense. But the idea is that basically, like, the text is the. It, ironically, because writers tend to overemphasize dialogue so much, the text tends to get too much importance. The most important stuff is the context and the subtext. Because um, the subtext is the intention, the context is the conflict that you're dealing with, the situation you're trying to deal with. So if we're. In space and we're flying toward the moon mm-hmm. and we know that uh, Is this
0: gravity by the way? Oh,
1: no, I don't know, I'm just <laughs> making okay, this sorry. up as we go. Uh, if we're flying toward the moon <laughs> mm-hmm. and we know that this is uh, that the only thing that's going to save us is uh, this little serum and it could either boil our blood or it might save our lives and we've just given up and we've been through this whole journey and we're about to open the hatch and I say go ahead, drink it, then we open the hatch, it totally changes the whole context. So that the context is about the situation you're dealing with, subtext is intention, text is just the artifact, it's one expression of that desire.
0: You had referenced the movie Thank You for Smoking yeah. um, in at least one of your videos. Mm-hmm. Um, forgive me, I haven't seen it but I want to make a point to see it and I've heard from many people. It's excellent. So it looked amazing. Yeah. And there were so many Aaron things… Aaron ama-
1: He's so charismatic in it.
0: it, it in the, yeah exactly and how he said he has sort of this BA and what was, it? What was his exact saying? Public Relations. Okay. Oh,
1: a BA in bullshit I think? Yes. Yeah, yeah. and,
0: right. And he's the guy that can talk the girl into anything kind of thing. Yeah. And so. What 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 in that movie? How would you break down the text, the subtext, and the context? And how much do you think that relates to the entertainment business, in the sense that they're trying to make it seem that smoking is okay? They're they're trying to portray that it's actually okay that.
1: See what I think is interesting. I mean, ultimately, that's what I I love that movie because it's a polemic. It's it's presented as morally. It's it's about moral ambiguity. You know, it. Um, there's this larger theme which is basically saying like. Um, culture, God, this is, this is a really complex breakdown. It's a complex move, but I fucking love it. It's Uh one of my favorites. Um, but at its core, it's, it's, it's about this guy who's trying to sell smoking, but what he's really trying to do, I mean, it's, it's an exercise in rhetoric, but what he's really trying to do is say, I don't want people to determine my life for me. I want to take control of my own life and I get to decide if I want throat cancer or not. Which is why at the very end, you're like, if my kid wants to smoke, I'm going to light it up for him. Because it's not really about him saying like, it's okay to smoke. What he's really, the whole story is this journey of him facing these, you know, largely it's one of the themes that's really close to me, which is um, large tribal groups trying to impose their values on individuals and his individuality coming back and saying, no, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want to do. And you're kind of a villain for trying to impose that on other people, and I and it does it in such a clever polemic way. And smoking is really just the pretext that gets us into it, because it's something that you know most people largely condemn. I don't smoke, and it's not, it's not healthy. But at the same time, who are you to decide that for other people? And that's what that that movie is, is asking about. But from a from a great rhetorical position, mm-hmm. you know.
0: So, would you say in some sense there's themes in terms of story, the entertainment industry, and how we view what's acceptable to watch? I think, like, what Rob Lowe plays the studio executive. I just watched yeah. a few clips. Oh, he's, he's just so great. Good. He's so great. I love that movie you so know? much. And so um, he's like pitching him, saying, "Yeah, I think that's such." He like he names two, movie, like that's how he sees the world is just yeah what what you know blockbusters have sort of
1: been hit. See, I don't know. I've I've been thinking about like, especially the entertainment industry and like a lot of a lot of people like especially on on your channel the interviews you guys are doing lots of discussion about you know what are the best rules for survival in the entertainment industry, and for me there's this metaphor that just kind of describes it simply which is that the entertainment industry is like a harbor and we have a constantly shifting tide the water's going up and down and that tide is the amount of tension that people are willing to pay to things now the industry does the best they can and we're talking by industry specifically we're talking about studios distrib- distributors production companies they're trying to understand which way the water's going where it's moving and most of the time, like you know, as a writer, um, you're trying to swim in these choppy seas because you're you you've built your craft, and you're trying to dock in the harbor. Now the studios have these docks, and they're they're the harbor, right? And um, because the water's constantly shifting, the best you can do is make your craft as adaptable to whatever the needs of the harbor are. So they're, they're looking for whatever is going to draw in the water as much as possible. This metaphor might break down a little bit if we get too specific. But, um, but the idea is basically everybody has to adapt to the shifting tide. And the studios especially. They have the most at stake. So they're looking for stories or writers, um, craftspersons that have built crafts that are adaptable to the shifting tides. And you know, there are some studios that have built these massive mega harbors and your little dinghy comes up and it's just going to get beat up against the water because it'll be swallowed up because, it, because the water's changing so much. Now especially with the changing of like streaming and distribution models are radically shifting and indie film is shifting and you know, people are making movies for less than a million dollars. Um, the harbor is dramatically different than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. So when it comes to the industry, all you're trying to do is find your path in. The best thing you can do is focus on developing your craft as much as possible, making it as adaptable as possible, which is really just the process of being able to delve into your metaphors and really work on being able to tell the stories that are compelling to other people. And that's that's uh, no one has the right answer to that. We're all just figuring that out. It's interesting. The other day, I went to uh, I went to this bookstore. It's this cool experience I had yesterday.
0: There's one actually left.
1: I know, right? <laughs> There's this little independent used bookstore. Oh, nice. It's beautiful. It's over in Atwater Village. Oh. And I walked in and I saw these beautiful typewriters, these Remingtons that were reconstructed and painted and beautiful. And I was drawn into it. And there was this woman there that was. Uh, She was writing on it. I was like, "These are beautiful." I wanted to buy one, but I was checking it out. She goes, "Oh, these are my my uh, typewriters." Like, "Oh, are they on exhibit?" And she goes, "Yeah, they're on exhibit." And she said, "I'm I'm actually a poet. I'm doing a kind of a exhibit." Um, And I'm like, "What kind of poet are you?" And she goes, "Well, I do this thing where um, I'll look into your eyes. You can tell me a word or a theme or something, and tell me something that's relevant to you." and then I'll write a poem for you and you can just pay me whatever you think it's worth. I was like, that's amazing, that's I have cool. to do this. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was very cool. So there was this phrase that was going through my head uh, earlier in the day, the out running ghosts. It's, it's just an interesting idea. Um, and so I mentioned that and she she looked at me for a little bit and I could see the wheels turning and there was this kind of unique connection and then she turns around puts a small slip of paper into the the remington and she starts typing and she starts out with the first outrunning ghosts of love she wrote and then she started writing this poem it just flowed out of her and it like she almost ran out of space and she says that rarely happens because it's something connected and it just worked she pulled it out and she said can i read it to you yes of course it's even better so she read it to me and I was surprised it genuinely moved me and I'm I love poetry most poetry is awful (laughs) and so I'm a little skeptical when it comes to poetry Um, but I, I wanted to hear it and she came from such an emotionally open place when she wrote about so she started writing this thing that genuinely moved me and you know my eyes teared up and she realized and she got emotional from it as well and what was what was amazing was that she was actually tapping into something that was deeply relevant to me personally and i think that right there is the core of great writing which is that she opened herself up emotionally and she delved into her own subconscious in a way that she was able to extract this metaphors that resonated with me in a very very deep way we don't know each other at all her name is uh, Jacqueline Suskin and I just remember because uh, she she signed it and put her name at the bottom of the poem and it was this beautiful experience where just by engaging the metaphors that were relevant to her she spoke to something that I needed to learn and experience and that to me is at the core of what what it means to be a writer, it's at the core of what it means to be an artist to engage those metaphors. And so what we're trying to do as writers, screenwriters, novelists, storytellers, short stories, whatever, we're trying to delve into that meaningful place, that vulnerable place and in some way diagnose or identify or even just express some conflict through the metaphors we're we're engaging and that's where we find the meaning. The Anatomy of Chaos.
0: (laughs) I mean, so do you think she's like an empathic poet? Is that definitely? She was showing pure empathy. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: I don't like. I'm 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 skeptical when it comes to you know supernatural things and things like that. But um, whatever whatever metaphor she was dealing with or that she was drawing on spoke directly to me in a really beautiful way. And um, and I think great writers can do that. I think very you know. And when I say great writers, I mean I, th- I think everybody should be writing. It makes us all better. It's like Vonnegut says, go write a poem. It'll make you a better person. Um, but great writers are able to tap into that that subconscious in such a way that they'll speak to a human experience that connects to all of us.
0: It's interesting you said ghost because I just finished um, Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, I think, mm. about David Foster Wallace. Oh, God. So it's about his his life and um, I couldn't read the end.
1: Yeah, cause it was, that breaks my heart. It
0: was too sad and I, yeah. I started to get angry in some sense because he was so talented. Yeah. And and I felt like it was it was such a waste and I was very upset and I couldn't read the end. Yeah. But I read the beginning and the middle and um, it's just an interesting concept of ghosts as well cuz yeah. cuz in some sense is that all we're seeking is is this like just how she wrote this poem just like this empathic experience um through what we what we watch what we read are we looking for what we're watching to basically tell us about ourselves yeah and so i was just wondering and you brought up the ghosts so that that was just interesting because i had just finished that but um,
1: yeah yeah that's beautiful
0: yeah Mm -hmm.
1: yeah david foster wallace
0: yeah okay Sorry. sorry With your videos, I, again, I keep going back to these videos, but they are amazing, and I see that you have almost all positive feedback. Mm. How does that make you feel?
1: That feels great. I mm-hmm. mean, does
0: it make you want yeah. to keep going with it, or yeah, like
1: people are really generous with the compliments. It's been very nice. Originally, I was saying things that I thought people would find provocative. I thought people were going to be angry at the way I defined act or impetus, and just because I'm ridiculously pedantic and stuff about that, but. Um, It's it's motivating because you know because people want like it actually helps them in their process and that's you know it just feels good. Um, I recently released this one video that I worked for a long time on. Did you see the one about religion and story?
0: I I saw some of it. I noticed it got strong reactions. Yeah, and I was curious about that. Forgive me, I didn't watch that one. No, that's okay. okay. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's
1: it's the longest one. It's (laughs) thirty five minutes, (laughs) and it's. Probably one of the more controversial ones just because I'm making very bold claims about the the nature and definition of religion mm-hmm. um, but the cool thing is is uh, it's been getting some really interesting attention from um, uh, I was contacted uh, I I'd sent it to um, David Sloan Wilson who is the president of the Evolution Institute and um, He uh, He contacted me and he's like this is some really interesting work. I I th- Think we should uh, submit this for peer review. And we'd, I'd like to talk to you about some of your ideas and uh, how you think this is uh, in, uh, informing the conversation. So right now there's, you know, I, I made a few very bold uh, claims about what the nature of religion and basically that... Um, I define religion in, in very broad but specific terms, which is that it's, uh, it's a strategy for survival that informs the narratives we tell ourselves and the consequence of that is that it draws people together and it's and ultimately it's defined by those uh, those values of the sacred and the profane so the it this is a conversation I've been fascinated by this um, you know a lot of the secular movements and like the the culture wars going on between um, you know for example religion and atheism and And then looking at like other other aspects of culture war, of the culture wars that are going on. And I think at the core of it is if we're able to be honest about the way we interpret information, the way we develop our loyalties, we'll actually be able to critically evaluate our sacred totems, our our metaphors, and then begin to deconstruct. Uh, whether those metaphors are accurate to reality. I think ultimately if we look at the paradigm of health, health is just about being able to respond proportionately to threats and opportunities. So I think if we can begin to look at religion not as just this kind of bizarre, um, uh, a lot of metaphors is is that it's a kind of a, a virus that overtakes the mind, but instead it's the way we develop value systems through metaphors and you know being someone who's deeply invested in story and the way we develop narratives to develop uh, value systems i think we we need to understand that process and that's why i'm so specific in trying to understand like what art is versus science and how those two relate because we can't have one without the other i mean as soon as we try to represent something it's a form of art as soon as it becomes an emotional experience then that informs our values so, um, so it's it's really exciting. It's been an honor just to to start talking with uh, with David, and um, I'm really curious to see what it comes up with because it's uh, it's a controversial um, it's controversial claims, but I think it's the conversation that needs to happen, and um, that's what I'm really interested in, in engaging. Plus, you know, I have a lot to say. I have a lot of things I care about. A lot of things I'm passionate about. And all of that goes into my writing, all of that goes into the stories. you know?
0: It's interesting that we have to have this like subcategory or whatever for faith-based scripts. Mm. I don't know, I just find that interesting. I mean you know if, if you look at it from like a, a, a you know a scale or a line and you have on the one end a cult, mm. and then on the other end would just be an openness to something that's greater than ourselves, you know and then we could just kind of go in the middle, but it just seems like a lot of that can't be talked about even if it's not. If it's like non-denominational, like it just it yeah. seems like no one can really have that in, in a screenplay without it being oh okay well this is a faith-based script, it's got to be yeah. that category. You know.
1: I mean, ultimately that comes down to distribution and marketing. You know, mm-hmm. and most of distribution and marketing is about responding to um, kind of axiomatic ideas, um, connotative beliefs. Of what most people think of something, like when you say faith-based, you know, there's a lot of argument about like belief versus knowledge, and how some people don't believe anything. But the truth of it is, is everybody has belief. Belief is just uh, when you internalize information and accept it as true. Um, but you know, when you say something is faith-based, you know, that's it, those are that's jargon that is designed to gear toward a very specific genre. And um, I don't know, some someone that has, you know, being someone that um, has a, kind of a skeptical view toward a lot of um, traditional narratives. I'm still fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. You know, being raised religious, I was fascinated by all the metaphors, but I think that ultimately helped me to begin to engage story on a different level, looking at how those metaphors exist, how they work, and how we internalize them.
0: Can we talk about Chekhov's gun?
1: So basically, uh, Chekhov's gun is the the axiom is if there's a gun on the wall and you mention it, you have to use it. If the gun doesn't go off, then you've set up an expectation that you didn't deliver on. Hmm. Um, And it's a good principle. Uh, And again, it's one of those principles where it's like, generally speaking, you want to obey it. But again, look at um, No Country for Old Men. They, Llewellyn Moss is a loaded gun on the wall, and in the end, he fails, and it doesn't. We don't get what we expected, but it meant something to the story. So it's like every principle. It it, it helps us to understand. Like um, the the general principle is that if you're going to talk about something, no detail in any story should ever be wasted. You're especially with screenwriting. You have You want to be as sparse as possible, you want to be as specific as possible. So when you're writing something, you're not just throwing stuff out there, it all has to be. You should regard every single word as a kind of setup that you now have a debt to resolve. Hmm. Um, But that said, if you are going to break that rule, have a really good reason for it. No Country for Old Men is the perfect reason because it directly contributed to the interpretation of the theme.
0: So even like if you just want to paint, you know, like in novels. Mm-hmm. I think are we much more apt to someone an author is going to paint a world and yeah. maybe add little details. Mm-hmm. But in a screenplay no, you're saying don't don't do too much of that world because it's it's just I it's wasting I would even say even time. with
1: novel writing. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, cuz I mean it really comes down to, you know, the the voice, the language um, and a lot of the times when you're setting something up, you're trying to plant seeds of something that you don't want the, the audience to be paying attention to because later it pays off and comes through and you're like, oh, I didn't even see that coming. But if you didn't set it up beforehand, then it feels like a cheat when it's suddenly introduced. Um, it really just comes down to really knowing the craft. It's super specific to the needs of your story. And a lot of that will depend on, you know, get it in front of other people, see if it feels like a cheat. See if it feels like you're setting something up. Sometimes, if you say, you know, the laser gun sitting on the table, you're going to be like, "Wait, laser gun? Are we in the future?" You know, and those are things you need to pay attention to. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, fine-tooth combing your script and um, getting other people to read it and gauging their expectations and uh, getting getting as much feedback as you can.
0: You talked earlier about adapting your videos into a book, but you also have a novel that you wrote. Yeah, that has to do with the entertainment industry. Yeah, <laughs> and religion. It's yeah. got a, a lot of just interesting stuff, and you made a um, book trailer. Yeah, which I watched. Um, was that something that someone advised you to do, or you knew all along because you're so visual as well that you wanted to? Um, it's a cool trailer, by the way. Thank you. I Good appreciate
1: thing. that. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, yeah, I mean it is something like you know in researching releasing a, a book independently I was looking at everything, you know, they're like you got to do a book trailer You should start doing videos that engage an audience and all of these things anatomy of chaos this book trailer all these things are kind of my attempt at doing these things and um, So with with the, the trailer I wanted to do a scene like most trailers. Kind of have these like you know, in a world <laughs> with that. and then it's like these flowing like kind of animated titles or pictures or montage, which some of them are cool. There's a few that are done well, um, but I'm like, so the novel I had originally written as a season, as a miniseries, and here's the quick pitch: basically, a reality show producer um, takes a hipster from Silver Lake and through a bunch of trickery and, and industrial light and magic, um, creates a prophet, an online prophet. And he says, this is gonna be a new religion. So using like all of his tricks uh, in the entertainment industry and the reality shows, um, he's like, I'm gonna make this a new religion. The thing that it is, is it takes off and it turns into a legitimate religion, a kind of a culty weird religion. And along the way, the prophet begins to believe or may actually be an actual prophet. And certain things start to happen. We're always with the main characters. name's Tommy Knox, reality show producer. He's cynical, skeptical, sarcastic glib. He's a hilarious character. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, and the whole story is these, is these two characters, one this cynical, sarcastic person, and one a completely uh, sincere, devout person and the, the incredible conflict that they come to. At, at the core of it I was really fascinated by the idea of what if there was this religious movement that took the world by storm but it was invented by a cynical asshole which I think is so funny and interesting. Um, and then the places that it goes is this really uh, dark interesting polemic that I wanted to tell. Um, so I structured it in such a way like originally I conceived it as a feature years ago. The more I explored it the more I was like there's so much good interesting stuff here with the characters with entertainment and religion and the overlap of the two it turned into I want to do a mini series out of this So I wrote the novel so each chapter is like a, a an episode and you know and um, so it's 24 chapters maybe be 24 episodes and uh, I've adapted a pilot. That you know, we're also um, I'm talking to a few different producers that they're they're taking some interest in, and um, but I had adapted the novel so it reads like an HBO series or a Netflix series, and it's it's hilarious. It's a comedy. It's completely different from serial, but I'd like to think that it has the same level of sophistication and and uh, um, some of the characters that it's uh, or a lot of the complex characters that are engaging the story. So, yeah.
0: It took you four months to write. Yes. How many pages?
1: It's a hundred or pages. I don't know. It's one hundred eighty thousand words. So wow. it depends, on however, we format it. Which is the the average first novel you want it to be around between ninety to a hundred thousand words. Mine's almost twice that, um, because of what I wanted to do. I wanted to have, uh, first of all, it's uh, it's a story that's been in me. It's the issues that I care deeply about: entertainment, art, uh, religiosity. Um, and the way we build metaphors as groups of people—it's really interesting to me. And there was so much interesting fodder and places that it could go that I really wanted to take the time. And I'm self-publishing it, so you know I hired some editors to uh, to edit it. And I'm really proud of it. I think it's great. Um, the the pilot's getting really good attention, mm-hmm. and now we have a complete template for a whole mini series for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is it is something that's. Uh, it's a meaty tome, but it it reads very sparse, very smooth.
0: and so it's available now on Amazon.
1: It is available now in fact uh, we're we're looking at it having adapting it to uh audiobook.
0: oh wow, yeah,
1: which is great. I'm really excited about that. Um, that we don't have an official announcement like when it's going to be coming out, but the book right now is available. You can buy uh, uh, either ebook or, or print as well
0: and the cover is really cool. you yeah designed I painted it.
1: it, I designed it and painted it so. Yeah, that's that's a good example of some of the painting I do. I have a classical background um, in classical artwork, so I oil painted, and I used to teach oil painting at uh, Cal Arts. I lived in Mexico for a few years, painting murals, and uh, made a few trek or made a trek to Italy and all that stuff. So, so yeah, that's a huge part of uh, what's interesting to me about it.
0: And did publishers appreciate your artwork?
1: Uh, some of them. I've been approached by a couple different publishers. Um, uh, and you know, each publisher wants to put their brand and their approach to it. Um, and uh, yeah, overall, I've had a really good response. Um, my original idea was to publish the the novel independently, largely to get it to uh, adapted to television. Um, I I do think it's a strong book that stands on its own. I think it's I think it's entertaining, but you know, I'm toot my own horn. But um, but I've been getting great reaction from it.
0: Have you approached any bookstores to try to get? I mean, the few that are left to try to get it uh, on the shelves?
1: Um, I'll I'll occasionally do signings and things like that. Oh, Um, but um, yeah, and I you know try to make it interesting and exciting and stuff. But um, honestly, it's largely an online thing. Like most of most of book sales, especially now, are are largely online. And so I, I tend, and this is part of my problem, I tend to focus more on just the writing. And right now, with the stuff I'm developing and the attention we're getting with, uh, with the stuff, some of the stuff we're shopping around, that's kind of my main boilerplate. But profit margin is, you know, we're, we're keeping that going, we're keeping that flame lit.
0: What do people ask you at these signings? I always think that it's such an interesting, it's kind of like this weird meet and greet, and it yeah. seems like it could be uncomfortable, but it oh, could no, also I, be fun at the same time. I
1: like meeting people. I mean, I'm a mm-hmm. social person, so I, I enjoy it. Um, yeah, I've had a few people that are. Uh,
0: what do they ask you?
1: So <laughs> there's one if that was. You can't repeat asking it, I don't know.
0: Maybe they ask you for your phone number or something. I don't sure, know. <laughs> there's that. Um, Sorry.
1: There's a. Okay, so profit margin, I will give this away. There's a secret narrative. Ah. And uh, some people have tapped into that and there's certain clues that I've written along the way if you if you read it And you come to the end there's a there's two potential ways of interpreting the ending and um, Not to give too much away, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people ask me questions about like so this character Michelangelo That's a clue right there if you start to unravel where like what these characters want what they're doing and what they mean to the story you can actually start to see what the secret narrative is so there's two different ways of interpreting the the same book so a lot of it is like some people are arguing about like what what the story actually means which is great because that's what I, I wanted it to be a polemic I wanted it to be a conversation starter
0: is it a story within a story or are you leaving clues?
1: I'm leaving clues so basically it's by double narrative I mean you're you're Ideally, you're reading it, trying to figure out how to say this without giving away too much. You're reading it in such a way that you're you're interpreting it as, okay, so for example, there are some miracles that happen. And as you're reading it, some people read it and they're like, wow, these miracles are amazing. And then other people are reading it saying, Oh, these are productions. This is Tommy Knox working his productions. And he's working behind the scenes to make this look like a miracle. And so then the question becomes is this guy, is the character he creates, is he a prophet or not? And the answer to that question is within the hidden narrative. And I don't want to give that away. Right, okay. Which mm-hmm. is why the book mm-hmm. is called Profit Margin.
0: So with Profit Margin, did you do the same thing with the screenwriting and you added the dialogue later? Um, so I'm sure there's heavy dialogue in, in there, isn't there? Yeah, oh. I mean,
1: it's been really interesting adapting it. So years ago, I had written a feature version of it, and then when I went back to revisit it, it was like there's so much here. I'm gonna write. I'm literally just gonna write the entire season as a novel. Um, so then, after writing the entire novel, I was like, I'm gonna go back and just adapt the pilot. I love the. I'm really proud of the pilot, and I've gotten really good responses from it. Um, but in doing that the pilot has a very different function than for example like a first chapter in a novel. So like for example there were certain characters I needed to flush out to kind of imply that this is going to be a journey of several different characters. The novel was written largely from just the perspective of Tommy Knox. For the pilot we want to see that there's some other characters that have really strong narratives. so I adapted some scenes that are in the pilot that are not in the novel. Um, and that's largely to, to, like with a pilot, you want to set up an engine uh, that these characters will, will you want to get a strong sense of the kind of conflicts and the kind of character and emotional dynamics you're going to be dealing with in a pilot that will extend itself through the whole season. Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of that, like in a novel, you have time to kind of build and explore and weave things in. With the, with the pilot, I had to be very concise, very specific. Do a lot of trimming, killing a lot of darlings, which, you know. So, but the dialogue, the nice thing is, is like, I like, it, this is about a, a, a slick uh, producer. Uh, he's good with sales, he's very sarcastic, uh, charismatic. Um, so, he's fun to write. His dialogue is so much fun to write. So, a lot of it was taken straight from the book. And uh, and then you know from there I just kind of had to adapt it to the needs of the pilot. you know it's like I would have a scene that would go on for you know five ten pages in a novel and I'd have to trim it down to half a page or two pages and that's you know that's that's what the the, the needs for the uh, uh, for the format are.
0: Where did you find these editors? Did you find them online and you just looked them up? Yeah the
1: I, I, I talked to other uh, novelists and other writers that I trust and uh, checked references and um, yeah, and it's it, it's just the process. Of, like what I would I would do like a, there's some uh, services where you can sign up and you'll um, ask for petitions for editors. And I think I had like something like 80 different editors hmm. um, that were interested in the project. And then from there, I just had them just do a quick edit of just like the, a 10 page sequence and just to see what their notes were. And then from there, I boiled it down to. Three editors, and then I got on the phone, had a discussion about like what I intended to do and what their experience was and what their expectations were. And Mm. yeah, it was it was a it was a cool process.
0: So are they looking at it not just for you know punctuation, grammar, things like that, but also structure and and how it reads? Yeah. yeah.
1: So what I did, I went for the full package. So the copy editors, which are looking at the punctuation, making sure that you know sentence structure and all that stuff is good, Um, and then there's content editors. and the content editors, uh, I went with the content editor first because you want to. Those are the ones that are interested in structure, uh, character. They need to be very familiar with uh, with how story works. Um, and it's that second pair of eyes. I mean, a, a good editor is invaluable, um, especially for someone like me who loves to just write and loves to go in the deep end. And I can just spend all day swimming in the deep end. I need someone to say, "All right, it's time to get out of the water." So. Um, yeah, so a content editor w- really helps with with making sure that all of the story dynamics are working. That like the you know those things we talked about. That um, my intention was to do this. I just need to make sure it's coming across. Um, and yeah, I found a great content editor, and then after that, hired a copy editor to just go through and make sure all the commas are in the right place. And no book's perfect. And every time I read it, I still find one or two mistakes, but. Uh, Or maybe probably more than one or two, but um, but yeah, it's uh, I'm really proud of it. I think it's a it's a fun read and it reads really smooth and I think it's hilarious. Well,
0: it's been such a dream of so many people. I feel like not so much of this generation, but of you know Generation X and before to write this great American novel. You Mm. know, and a lot of that seems to be. I guess it's not going away, but it seems like less and less because now everybody wants to be a YouTuber or Whatever, sort of live this, you know, influencer lifestyle, and and some of that feels like it's gone away a little. No,
1: I don't think so at all. No? I think I think, never been pow- more powerful. Like, I mean, there's definitely like you know they talk about the democratization of distribution, of publishing, of writing and producing and making films and everything. So, um, I more people are writing, more people are, are publishing, putting their stuff out there. It also means that you have a lot more maybe lower quality stuff. some writers their their main goal is to put out as much as they can um, without necessarily spending as much time on the quality um, which is a strategy. Uh, for me, I'm you know I want to make it as good as I possibly can so I spent I mean I wrote it quickly in four months, but that four months was the product of ten years of preparation beforehand oh. mm-hmm. so you know I, I wrote it in four months, and then spent the next year working with the editor, getting it to a place where we both felt like it was ready to publish. Um, so it's—I I mean, there's so many writers, and now this is, you know, like YouTubers and things like that. That's a new—it's a newer phenomenon, but it's great because it's more voices. Um, and I—I I still believe that you know, people that are putting out good content attract the kind of attention that mer- that merits it you know it's, it's the, the cream always rises to the top and you know it probably means that there's like a higher ratio of, of just total shit that's out there but um, you know but ultimately it's it, it, the, the good stuff still comes through and you know it, it can happen naturally or virally I know distributors are working really hard at trying to market stuff but you know, if it's shit, it's shit, and if it's not, then it'll get some attention.
0: When you finished profit margin, did you feel almost sad? Did you feel a depression, like a postpartum yes. depression we were talking about? Yeah, like yeah. your baby's out there and graduated. and
1: Well, the first thing that happened is I fucking hated it. because oh, <laughs> I finished it and I was like, I just wasted. I've been I loved this story for so long. I finished it, and then I was like, that's all it was. I've, it's something personal every project as soon as I finish it mm-hmm. I gotta get away from it because I'm like sick of it right and I think like oh that's all it was because it's you know in your mind you build it up and it's like it's gonna do all these different things so the I did the you know the right thing is I got away from it and I just put it away and then a couple months later I went back and I'm like all right you're a little bit fresh now reread it and there's a lot of good stuff and so you know started the rewrites and stuff like that and then took it through a few different rewrites and then got it to the editor shortly after that. Um, but yeah, like you know, you you begin to develop a relationship with the characters mm-hmm. and the more effort and energy you put into the story, the more it means to you. So, you know, like Tommy Knox, he's a fun character, right? And Nava, who's the prophet in the character. He's a really interesting enigmatic character. There's the whole dynamic, the world is fun to write. But that's true with every Every story I write, when I'm done with it, it's I put it away, and there's just kind of this, uh, I don't know. But I mean, at the same time, I I tend to be juggling a lot of projects, so I'll put one away, hate that project, and then fall in love with this new project, and it's uh, you know, it's like that one uh, Cat's Cradle, Kurt Vonnegut book where the the scientist is like he just gets distracted by turtles and like the defense department is like we really need him to work on this bomb again and he's like yeah but he's trying to figure out what the nature of turtles are you know it's like it, i'm endlessly seeking out new fascination and i but that's just how my mind works i'm constantly interested in new ideas and then i'm interested in taking those ideas and making them building emotional narratives around them
0: in what ways can a screenwriter ruin a scene
1: uh, it's almost easier to ask which way they can fix it because there's so many ways to ruin it. I mean, there's lots of ways to do something badly. Um, you know, some of the most typical ways are just you know exposition, just using like straight. I'm going to explain exactly what I want. Often, if the dialogue dialogue is, if the dialogue is directly proportionate to the desires, like somebody that walks around and says, "I want this glass of water." I want to shake your hand. I want you know when their action is directly proportionate to their, to what they're saying, it gets it tends to get bad. It tends to get uh, you're not you're not revealing anything about the character, and you're not exposing, and you're not emotionally engaging. Although there is a really interesting exception to that. Like, uh, did you see uh, the killing of a sacred deer?
0: No, I wanted to. I was watching the trailer, and and I think I missed the window at the Lemley, and I wanted to see it.
1: It's so I loved it. I mean, it looks excellent. Filmmaker, but he did this. He did this thing where he's breaking all of the rules. There's no rules, whatever. But um, but you know this assumption of like having characters say exactly what they want, saying exactly what's on their mind, um, and delivering it in this kind of uh, deadpan way. And it, it does it in such a way that's incredibly intriguing. And I still can't wrap my brain around it. I'm still kind of trying to understand why it was so effective, but I couldn't take my eyes off of it. Like it's, it's you know, Colin Farrell walking around with this kid talking about watches and the importance of just, you know, this, this I think I should get a new uh, wristband and it's important. And they're, they're very matter of fact and it feels just left of normal conversation. Like it doesn't, it feels very contrived and stilted and it's for some reason you just slowly get drawn into this kind of rhythm and cadence and then before you know it you're like oh these people are they're not talking about their watches they're talking about what these what the relationships actually mean to each other and it's it's so well done Hmm. I loved it
0: I really really want to see that one yeah it's
1: really darkly funny like there are a few movies this last year that were they felt like these kind of dark dramas but they were so funny they were they were Written in this great absurdist way. Like Mother. I thought Mother was hilarious.
0: Didn't get to see that. It oh, looked really good. intriguing because you couldn't really figure out from the trailer what it was about. It wasn't really clear.
1: Yeah. I'm actually planning on doing a video where I want to talk about um, allegory. And uh, I, I think Mother is much more interesting than a lot of people are giving it credit for just because of, uh, it, it's cool to see a filmmaker who is deliberately engaging allegory and allegorical tropes. In a way, the very few are. So it's it'll be it'll be fun. That'll that be forthcoming. That'll just be a tease.
0: I'm not sure if this relates to contrast, but you say that the audience loves contrast. I think you talked about in one of your videos. If a character comes in angry, then they mm. need to leave with some resolve or or happy something. But if they come in happy, then they need to leave the scene angry. There mm. needs to be some kind of a, a, a contrast.
1: Yeah, that's that's a principle I learned from uh, you know just reading Robert McKee. Um, basically the, the idea is that a scene turns on the emotional state of of the character or characters. Um, and basically the idea is that by by contrast, the whole point of a story is to get us to engage emotionally. So what when we're tracking something, you know, the, the logic should be as it should be as logical as it needs to be so that we can emotionally invest in something. So something needs to be logical if it within the confines of the world um, just enough so that we can care about what they care because what we really are interested in is what is the emotional state of these characters so um, and the best way to know if a scene is turned is if the character comes in with this you know positive emotion they experience some conflict and the result causes a shift if they come in happy and they leave happy Generally speaking, nothing significant has happened, and so what we're what we're looking for when we're structuring our scenes, or what I'm looking for when I'm structuring my scenes, is some sort of um, emotionally significant experience that changes the way they're seeing their situation, hmm. and then from there, using their strategy, they adapt to to new conflict.
0: Is that the one where you used uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross? I think you use some of that. Maybe it wasn't that one.
1: You know, Mammoth's Creed is um, what does the character want, uh, why now, and what happens if they don't get it. You know, so it, it's asking those three questions, which form a kind of litmus test to whether the scene is worth it. Um, and then from there, you know, you take McKee's principle of uh, of turning the scene from a positive to a negative or a negative to a positive. Um, and the idea of contrast is basically what I, what I was trying to say is that um, we want to pace out a film, and it shouldn't be just ridiculous jumps in contrast. If she, she comes in, like if a main character comes in and she's just exploding with joy, and then hits the depths of of sorrow, that's melodrama, and we begin to disengage. Or just, you know, I mean, there's plenty of exceptions to this, but. Um, but ultimately what we're looking for is a kind of journey which means we're we're um, we're following the emotional journey that they're going through with ups and downs and usually some shifts and then sometimes it drops out from under you. So a lot of that is about understanding the way you can pace out and establish a rhythm of different scenes and you start to develop certain stakes and then you drop it and raise the stakes and things like that. So it's all about playing with the expectations and getting the audience to guess what's going to happen next.
0: Mm. So, are those the three questions sometimes you'll ask with your character, even supporting characters? Not just the, the protagonist or the antagonist, but just some of the supporting ones?
1: Yeah. So, a lot of things about, uh, about structure, especially, is largely to do with rewriting. Although that does inform outlining as well. That's all the principles inform each other. A lot of the story structure theory, like for example, especially like scene dynamics, that, that video was largely due to kind of like almost like checklists of once you've already written a scene, these are some ways to know if it's working or not. So I took Mammoth's um, Creed and I took uh, Robert McKee's principle of like turning from the emotions up to positive and negative and verse, vice versa. And then I came up with a list of like essential scene dynamics. And a lot of that just—it's kind of like a checklist of something that um, I'll be reading. Something I'll—I'll I'll make sure that each scene that I write has these elements, and if they don't have the elements, then it's then usually I can diagnose exactly what's what's wrong with it, what's not working with it.
0: Are there certain films that you've come to later in life? Like you watched it the first time. I know we talked about how, when I first came to LA, that Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross was just the the talk of the town, and then I couldn't appreciate it at that age. But then I watched it later, and I just saw how brilliant it was. There's certain films that first time you saw them, eh, and then you realize like how incredible something was later.
1: Okay, A Clockwork Orange. I saw that when I was maybe 13 years old. And I couldn't finish it. I was so bothered by it. It made me angry. It made me upset. There was that scene, that horrible scene where they break into that family's house, and it's and it made me, it just bothered me. And people were always talking about how brilliant it was, and it was this genius film. And I couldn't finish it. And then years later, when I was at film school, I watched it and I was like, oh, it was because I was so emotionally impacted that that showed the power of the film. I just wasn't at a place, a level of maturity where I could kind of appreciate it for the art that it was. And now I think it's it's brilliant. It's still brutal, but to try and understand like what Kubrick was doing, like there's there's just endless amounts of lessons, and it's just a brilliant piece of film. But there's there's a ton of films like that. Um, Reservoir Dogs. First, that was another one. I stopped it. <laughs> I stopped it right when he was uh, torturing the cop. I couldn't take it. I was just like, This is too much. This is too dark. And then of course, right after that scene, there's the big reveal, no spoilers, but mm-hmm. there's the big reveal. So I started watching that again when I was like fourteen years old. I'm like, this is just too dark. It's too brutal. And years later I watched the entire thing and I'm like, Oh, there's so much more to it. So though having those few experiences was like, okay, I need to sit through a film and let the let let the filmmaker take me on the journey, you know? It's right. And there's, you know, and there's movies like, um, what was it, Antichrist? <laughs> I wanted to get out of that film because it was so brutal. It's still one of the most horrifying movies I've ever seen. But um, did you see that one?
0: I didn't. I'm thinking of Platoon. I think I saw that with a bunch of people, and it was just—I yeah. couldn't wait for it to. I was—it was too brutal for me.
1: Yeah, but that—I mean, now it's—I mean, now I'm just like—I try to like. Just be open to it I still don't like you know torture porn is it uh, doesn't <laughs> doesn't do much for me ironically because this you know I'm working on a show that has elements of well it's largely psychological horror <laughs> but it does like there would be some some people would over have some overlap with like um, some torture scenes but ultimately it's it's about how this is impacting them emotionally <laughs> um, But yeah, a lot of that is about you know you don't have to sit sit through anything you don't have to go experience art. It's just the more you do, the more rewarding it is to you.
0: I know you're a fan of Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. Yeah, and uh, most people are. There's not really any criticism of him, is there?
1: Well, I think. like I learned so much from Joseph Campbell. I like I discovered him pretty young. I was like maybe sixteen or seventeen when I started reading him, and I was you know amazed by it. And of course, the thing that was nice about him was he was kind of a foray into Jung, and like you know the theory of archetypes and things like that. So it was you know it's it. Well, well, Campbell's dense. You know, it's it's a totally different thing to delve into Jung and Freud and all those things. Um, and what I. Part of the issue, like I know that, like for example, the hero and the hero's journey, and people regard the hero as like one of the the central um, architects of the character. But I, I think Joseph Campbell illuminated certain insights into story that I, that were incredibly helpful. But I don't think it's enough of a complete theory. And I, I plan on doing a video about this later to, to kind of get more specific. But just to give a teaser. I mean ultimately, you know, when we look at a hero, a hero is a very specific it's a specific kind of character. That's why I tend to refer to things as a protagonist versus a hero. A hero is is someone that exhibits certain virtues and values that are considered an ideal. And usually the story is about them testing their mettle. Um, but, but a story can be so much more than just a kind of vulgar propaganda on uh, on exhibiting ideal virtues, um, and that's why, like the hero's journey, I think is brilliant. It's fantastic. One thing that I I, I liked about Joseph Campbell was that he was exploring the way the universality of certain uh, story structures. Um, but I don't think it's enough of a complete paradigm because uh, when we look at why we tell stories, it it doesn't quite account for the initiation of the tribe or into the tribe. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I think is, that's something that's very fascinating to me is that like um, my next video is about tribalism actually. I'm in the process of talking about tribalism. I, I'd set up the relationship between re- religion and story in one video and then I'm gonna tie into tribalism. And I'm defining uh, tribalism in a very specific way. We're gonna go into the kind of uh, uh, biological imperatives that inform tribalism. Um, But basically, um, and this is a little teaser, but um, I I define uh, groups, there are different groups of people that define themselves according to what their objectives are. So for example, a community is a group of people with a common interest. A movement is a group of people with a common cause. A tribe is a group of people with a common enemy. Mm. So, and they have very, very different ways of functioning. If you have an enemy that creates a kind of, usually creates a kind of loyalty becomes very important. It's a, virtues, uh, it's a virtue within a tribe, within a community of broad open interests. You don't necessarily need loyalty in order to function. You can just have um, voluntary interactions. With tribalism, um, because it defines itself primarily by its enemy, Um, And it presents presents it as a threat and therefore hierarchy becomes very important and um, a lot of stories uh, throughout most of history most of the history of humanity were designed to help create those hierarchies so because most tribes were surviving in the context of a lot of uh, a lot of constant threat perpetual threat which means they had to live in very rigid uh, communities or relig- uh, rigid groups of people. Um, so the narratives and the stories they would tell were always about hero structures. They were they were um, designed to to help people incorporate these values and these virtues as vital to survival. And um, so because of that, um, the this hero's journey was ultimately a kind of propaganda because it was designed to to drive people's behavior and value system to be subject and loyal to the tribe. And that's why I think stories that are more engaged in moral ambiguity have much more interesting things to to tell because they're not just interested in imposing or propagating specific narrow values that emphasize loyalty, but instead will actually explore the nature of the human condition. And that's what I think is a much more interesting thing. If we can understand the way that story is a kind of exploration of values rather than just a propagation of values, then I think we actually have a more meaningful discourse in in understanding story and uh, and humanity.
0: I think I asked you earlier if you'd seen the movie Margin Call, yeah. and I, I just recently I saw that one late too. I think it was 2010 or whatever. Yeah. But I think that's a great. Uh, when you're talking about groups of people and some of the, 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 the rules of sort of the. Let me try that again. We talked about the movie Margin Call. Mm-hmm. Just watched it. I think you said you did too.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm wondering who is the hero in that film? Is it Stanley Tucci's character?
1: Well, see, that's what I think is so interesting about it. Margin Call is a great exploration of moral ambiguity. So it's a perfect example of breaking this concept of the hero's journey. Um, It's about a phenomena that happened. It's about people who were Who were willing to make certain moral concessions in order to achieve? uh, certain advantages and in that way we began to explore this this whole new world like through margin call we began to explore this whole world of finance and and collusion corruption without necessarily condemning or or dismissing it as as just this. I mean, yes, it's a it's a it's a disturbing thing that happened, but it explored it in such a way that it was trying to say like we're trying to look at the psychological mechanisms that were active to create this situation, because we're still trying to wrap our head around that recession. We're still trying to wrap our head around like all the consequences and how we got there. And the whole point of story is really to help us to build meaning so that we can avoid falling in those pits. And Margin Call is a perfect example of exploring that without trying to impose virtues, but instead uh, engage a deeper understanding of what were the causes, and that to me is really interesting storytelling. I mean, I still enjoy hero's journey stories like, uh, you know, Star Wars is like the original three were some of my favorite movies when I was a kid, um, but Margin Call was was designed to be critical. And arrive at a certain understanding. It wasn't trying to say these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, and that's why I think it was a much more sophisticated, interesting story.
0: Yeah, that was a brilliant um, film, and it was done, I think, with very few crew members. And yeah, I think I was hearing that maybe there were so few crew members that people were, when they saw some of the talent in the film, like it was such a an open set. That it was hard to keep onlookers away because there wow. was not it was not a lot of security. It was just oh, like really? such a small um, production. Yeah, it's super um, contained. But with with the so you would say though that maybe Stanley Tucci's character in Margin Call wasn't the hero, but he was the protagonist, obviously. Would
1: yeah, you say? I mean okay. uh, he was definitely somebody that represented um, a certain moral that we aspire to. Mm-hmm and it's kind of it, there is the the kind of implication of like if we had just had his but i mean he was somebody that wasn't able to to prevent it either you know right. so it's like mm-hmm. he's somebody that's that's behaving nobly and with integrity in several characters or but um, but ultimately it wasn't it wasn't just this simple um, this is how to behave to solve this problem mm-hmm. it's an exploration of like what are the psychological dynamics Which is, to me, that's so much more interesting.
0: Let's take Spotlight for a moment. You saw Spotlight, okay? So, is there a hero in that? Is Mark Ruffalo's character the hero, sort of exposing some of this stuff? (laughs) That's you're bringing up several. (laughs) uh, That's
1: another one that I wouldn't Mm -hmm. say is is, as propaganda because it's not. um, It wasn't about uh, trying to impose a value system. It's about exploring the causes. Hmm, okay. and I think a lot of the great stuff is trying to explore the causes of what how we get in the situation and spotlight ultimately that's what was so great about um uh, what's his name birdman
0: oh right uh-huh with Michael Keaton yeah mm-hmm. that's what was
1: yeah. so great about Michael Keaton's character right was they had that moment where he was um, where he realized that he was the one that closed down the story like he realized that he was contributing to some of the Mm cover-up not because he was deliberately corrupted or colluding but that's what the story is about is about the fact that we're not looking in the right direction when it comes to certain things that are harming us Mm -hmm. and it asks the question why are we looking past all these things? Why aren't we seeing these predatory behaviors for what they are? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's a great movie because it's it's about how slowly culture um, dilates the spotlight to focus on the things that we need to, and then the balance becomes you know how do we focus on it without a witch hunt, and that's that's another interesting theme,
0: right? And then you talked about tribes and community, mm-hmm. and so tribe is something that has a common enemy, yeah, right? And then community, I mean, we've all anybody who's had a corporate job. Where you know you have to sort of there's politics, yeah. there's unspoken politics, and then there's spoken, and and that's the thing about Margin Call was that it was presented in a way where a lot of times we have to look the other way for things and we don't want to, but we know if we want to keep a job, yeah, we kind of have to sell out, and that's that was so brilliantly portrayed in that film. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Have you ever read uh, Seth Godin's book uh, Tribe?
0: I have not. I think I've watched some videos where he's talked about it. Oh yeah. okay. But I yeah. think he has an amazing library of books that he's written.
1: So he's, it, it's interesting because what he defines as tribe, I would define more as a community. Hmm. Um, okay. Largely because what he's saying is we need tribal leaders. We want you to find people that, like, we, we need people that are passionate, that are interested, that are engaged um, to take up their mantle and explore things that they're interested in. And that's good, that's all healthy. Um, to me, it becomes tribalism when you introduce an enemy. Because then immediate, because what he's describing is voluntary interactions of passionate people, and that's a good, healthy thing. That's a robust community. But with a tribe, it turns into um, it turns into this is our enemy. Right. This is how we're, and that's when a lot of the thinking becomes disproportionate. That's when we, we begin to interpret everything as a threat, and it's great at creating loyalties and it's a. I mean if you look at the political
0: just, landscape yeah, we're looking <laughs> at it was
1: all about people doing everything they could to portray the person they disagreed with as an enemy yeah and therefore we have tribal loyalties it's it's, it's a great way to like short circuit people submitting to or complying with things that they would never comply with otherwise so uh, i think ultimately Tribalism has its place like you look at the military. It's a deeply tribal culture And it should be because it needs to be able to respond to threats. That's the purpose of it But generally speaking as as like a nation as a country tribalism is rarely the right answer Um, Just because most of the time we don't have these threats. We don't have these enemies We mostly have causes that we want to resolve issues that we want to resolve and collaborate and ideally, mostly, we have common interests that we voluntarily interact with. So, and that's something I'm going to be talking about in my interview in, uh, in the next uh, tribalism video. So, I don't want to give too much of a cheat. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> give away all my good content here.
0: And also, too, the, the 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 as you said, without getting too deep into specifics of the political landscape, that it's made some people who weren't tribal members parts of new tribes. Yeah. And 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 people that have been friends for years yeah basically turn on each other.
1: That's yeah, radicalized everybody.
0: Mhm. Right.
1: Not everybody. I mean, I I think most people are like this is just silly. It's just getting ridiculous. But but yeah, I mean, you know, you have these people behaving radically, which mm-hmm. creates a lot of strong emotional reactions, and that strong emotional reaction just breeds condemnation, and condemnation breeds fear and Which ultimately breeds loyalty and separation. So, you know, a big thing that I'm, a big theme that it works, it goes through almost all of my stories, Mm -hmm. is this idea of how do groups work and how do they develop value systems versus the individual, how the individual develops value systems. And so, a lot of my stories are all about a person slowly coming to realize, and this is true for my own personal life story. Somebody who's very much wrapped up in the narratives of a group becoming aware of how those value systems have failed them and then begin to engage the work of deconstructing that in their own life and then overcoming it. That's, that's something that's probably a big theme in almost all of, all of the stories that I write. But I also think it, that resonates with a lot of other people too.
0: Who was the author that said men go mad in crowds? Forgive me. I'm, I should know. This. I don't know. It's oh, a great oh, okay. quote, though. It's, it's a. It's a famous. <laughs> I think I said it. I'll claim it. Okay, that's mine. that sounds good. Yeah. see <laughs> either that or Have Oscar Wilde? Have I ever told you yeah. men go mad in crowds?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> story is the act of dreaming while you are awake.
1: Yeah. Um, so, I think that's at the core of what the function of dream is and what the function of story is. And that's why I've repeated it several times throughout the series. And you know the, the process of dreaming is the the way we internalize the information from the day into our value system. So we're all composed of these subconscious, and the subconscious is constantly absorbing information. Now we have to learn to prioritize that information or we won't survive. We can't even navigate the world around us. It's a kind of um, psychological equilibrium. So when we dream, what we're doing is the we're we're going through the process of taking this information connecting it to emotional values and weaving that into our subconscious and that right there is the fertile ground of metaphor that's where we're planting our metaphors and that's where they grow from so the the dream is the render machine for our lives and so what we what we do when we're, we're telling stories. we're allowing ourselves to experience certain things where we're watching a series of events but that have emotional resonance to us which is why it has such powerful effects on a culture when when you tell a story to a million people that's that's imposing it's offering up a new way to look at the world and then if we internalize it emotionally if we sympathetically connect with it and we allow it into our subconscious and it, and it affects the way we develop our, our, our internal value systems, our sacred and profane, then, then it completely changes the way we see the world. And that's a really powerful thing. So ultimately when we're, when we're telling stories, we're allowing ourselves, we're trying to engage that subconscious part of each of us. And draw it into the conscious and change the way we have our value systems.
0: Can storytellers change the public consciousness through manufacturing new stories, or do you think it has to be in the public's space and reenacted in film and TV? Can we manipulate? Let's let's suppose society is on a, a a a downward spiral in certain ways hmm. whether it's a new breed of terrorism whether it's whatever um, people's isolation through social media and being mm-hmm. online all the time can we in not infect because that sounds like a negative connotation but inject new stories that could change certain things or it has to follow what's already out there in sort of the ether
1: I mean I'm I'm a pretty positive person, I, I think like the truth of it is is the world is amazing right now. I mean politically speaking it seems like it's this awful place and yes people are behaving really badly but the truth of it is if you look at the trends, uh, are you familiar with Steven Pinker uh, *Enlightenment now? So like read Pinker, read Chomsky, compare both of them, compare and contrast you know I don't have any loyalties either way but there's really good information in both of their writings generally speaking we have a long way to go before we're genuinely healthy robust communities that said we're doing really well and as storytellers it's an opportunity we 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 have opportunities every single day even just in facebook posts or even in writing samples or even in getting online and talking about your situation profoundly affects other people emotionally so you know, this is honestly this is the time where we're inundated with endless amounts of stories. The, the image has never been powerful. It's interesting because, like, since the internet, you know, I remember being asked by um, this one student, like, you know, do you think illustration is dead? Is art dead? Because you know, it's all online and it's all about film and animation. I'm like, it, the, the image has never been more powerful. Like, think a hundred years ago, like how. How difficult it was to share just a printed image. Now, you can be constantly producing stuff. Like you know, when I was a kid, I dreamed of the day where I could just find out about all these artists that were pulling from different stuff or reading all these things, like experiences that I had no access to. I'd have to go to a library or something like that, and I'd have to look through endless amounts of books to kind of find the stuff. Now, go on Instagram or go on Facebook or look at different artists and stuff, and. So I think the truth of it is we're in a really good place. People are panicking because they're always panicking. It always feels like the end of the world because we're living on the edge of eternity. Like we're right at the edge looking over looking over, having no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. That's just the human condition. But the reality is we're doing really well and we're learning a lot and ultimately as storytellers, as writers we're doing everything we can to generate new metaphors to help us to go into the dark night. God, that sounded corny.
0: <laughs> but I see what you're saying. I mean because not only that is the preservation of images. Because like sure. for me, I wanted to look up uh, an old shopping mall that was in the Bay Area that I used to go to as a teenager and I think it'd been demolished. It was there. It was part of the, the malls of the eighties huh. that were and I didn't realize there was an entire Pinterest group. Dedicated to, or you know page, oh, wow. so and I could relive these memories that would be long lost because it brought out oh I remember this spot I remember going to this Sears I remember all these different things all of that people had preserved them they had put them up someone had a blog about you know and and all of that so in in some sense that's great because some of that would be lost yeah you know and uh, but yeah I, I mean I'm not trying to paint it in such a dark way but i just wonder you're so pessimistic yeah well sorry we're <laughs> I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> how can we can we how can we manipulate things in a good way not not spin yeah. things in a bad way where I, i'm i'm going to skip you know current news events where stuff could be spun to make you think a certain way but what if we were able to spin things almost like thank you for smoking mm. but in a great way not not and i realize it's about free I mean, that will that is that, that is be, that's mm-hmm.
1: largely what rhetoric is rhetoric is about presenting information in a way that persuades people to comply with you um, but I, you know to me what really great art is and what we what everybody decides what they want to do with their art and what they want to do with with their stories and i don't think people should be telling other people what to write or what not to write you, you get to decide how you're going to engage the market and the market gets to decide whether you're relevant or not, but um, but ultimately, the, the stories that are you know asking important questions, that are challenging important questions, I believe you know, bringing truth, challenging uh, existing beliefs, challenging values, um, is one of the most powerful things we can do, um, and it, and we can do that through entertainment. Entertainment is the way that we engage other people's minds. And by, by exploring stories that challenge us, that excite us, that inspire us, then we find, I think ultimately, then we find a more healthy way of looking at the world. Because, you know, one of the biggest battles we have in humanity is to overcome our own biases. And I think story is the perfect mechanism to do that. But, you know, and it really just comes down to everybody just, Following your passions, you know Campbell describes it as following your bliss I'm more interested in finding my fascination and following the fascination When people talk about writer's block and stuff like that a lot of that is about like, you know letting the the metaphor bake long enough so it's ready but part of that also is Keying into your fascination. Like what is it that fascinates you about? Um, a, a hitman or a serial killer or a uh, you know a woman that's uh, leading a march or something like that like that's those those or some sort of historical experience once you engage the fascination then if you're being completely honest with yourself you're going to find a way to tell the story that, that's meaningful to you.